It's not him. It's not who? It's Bob Driscoll. Jesus, what happened to him? Bob? Bob. That's City Mark. Bob? Who is this man? My company sent an exposition to the Verungus. This man was with them. <laughs> Lay him over there. What happened to him? I don't know. Bob? Hello, and welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast that creeps, crawls, slithers, skitters, burrows, chomps, lunges, and rampages its way through the best and worst pop culture of the 80s and 90s to find out which ones we should gently scoop up and release back out into the wild, and which ones we'll spray with raid and step on until we're 100% certain that they're dead. (laughs) I'm Chris, the podcast host who can still envision the crib all around me, clear as day, waking up drowsy, peaceful, secure, and then there it was seemed huge, and it just came relentlessly, crawling through the bars of the crib, and then, as it touched my bare leg, all my limbs involuntarily froze, just froze. I was paralyzed, physically unable to stop it, crawling from along my naked skin. I can still feel its hairy little legs, then up to my face, a feeling of utter helplessness of being explored by an alien thing. I have often thought of you that way. I am Seth, the host most likely to eat the sesame cake. (laughs) <laughs> Much briefer than my intro. So uh, you'll notice that you heard uh, just just two voices there, both very masculine <laughs> male voices. Incredibly strong. Hero type. Really. Heroic. I wasn't going to say heroic, but I'm going to agree with you because it's true. Yeah, our our third usual co-host, Becky, went outside to see why the dog was barking so much. And then when we went out to look for her, all we found was a dismembered eyeball. So I don't think it was her eyeball, to be honest. I don't know what her eyeballs look like. You think maybe she squeezed it out of the dog? Occam's razor. I think that's the easiest explanation here. I mean, honestly, I'm just glad we got rid of our third wheel in this scenario. Yeah, we really have been looking for a way to get rid of her, and by golly, we found a way to do it. (laughs) It was a really long con with this whole second pregnancy, giving birth, new motherhood thing. But, I mean, if anyone could pull it off, it's the two of us. As everyone knows, girls are made of sugar and spice and everything nice. All things that are missing from this boys-only episode full of snips and snails and puppy dog tails. (laughs) Or rather, the 90s creature feature equivalent, worms, snakes, sharks, spiders, apes, and crocodiles. And, like, maybe one puppy dog tail. Like, let's be honest, there's at least one dog in these movies. I feel like dogs mostly survive monsters. At least in these movies. I've Hmm. I've seen some unfortunate pups. Oh, no. As discussed in our Schwarzeprager's episode, last episode, uh, Becky is currently busy with her very own personal creature feature. (laughs) And as usual, when living creatures are coming out of her body, we'll have a No Girls Allowed episode, taking the opportunity to discuss boy things and alienate an estimated 90% of our listening audience. If we don't alienate our listening audience through our episode choices or through the just words we routinely say, then we'll do it through this. The creature features will do it. Yes, this is our 90s creature sex a feature. <laughs> sex as in sextuple, meaning six, for we are discussing six, count them, six nature horror monster movies of the 90s, beginning at the very start of the decade with Tremors, released in January 1990, continuing through the 90s with 
Arachnophobia, Congo, and Anaconda, and wrapping up at almost the turn of the millennium with Lake Placid and Deep Blue Sea, both released in the summer of 99. So travel with us from the remotest corners of the Amazon rainforest in Brazil to the deepest, darkest jungles of the Congo, from the most scenic, calmest water bodies of Maine to picturesque small-town California, and from Perfection Nevada, population 14, uh, better make that nine, to <laughs> somewhere in the ocean, they didn't really specify. <laughs> we cannot guarantee your safety, but we can guarantee a good time. Jumping back in the DeLorean, a Saturday morning, and we both be cynical or radical, but was it good because we were young? Was it good because we were dumb? Did we think it'll suddenly suck? Now we're cheated and all grown up, and there was so much that we loved. Do we think it'll make the cut? Will it be a fantasy or will it be fun? Decades later, will it still hold up? And this is when we were young. When we were young. So as mentioned, today we are discussing the big screen creature features of the 1990s, which do indeed feature many of nature's most nightmare-inducing critters, some from the deepest heart of the jungle, some from the deepest depths of the sea, some rising up from deep underground. And what they have in common is that these animals come from places that are much deeper than the films that they're starring in. Before we get into that, though, I have an opening question for us, one that is about as obvious as most of the plot points in these movies. Did your childhood or teen years feature any of the creatures we're discussing in these films, or any other perilous creature encounters? And regardless of whether or not there were any specific shark attacks or whatever, what creatures freaked you out when you were a kid? Ooh, I feel like in some ways I am kind of unique in that I nerded out from a very young age about all creatures, all creatures great and small, simply intrigued and delighted me. In particular, several of the very self-same creatures will be featuring in these movies. I, literally as far back as I can remember, loved to go to the zoo, loved to go to the aquarium, loved at the place where I went to school, recess time, and like after school, just exploring and checking out bugs and insects and little tiny creepy crawly things. I loved and was just entranced by sharks and by snakes in particular. Growing up, I had my parents constantly buy me like nature books and books especially about sharks and especially about snakes. But like sharks in particular, I think were my most featured creature, the ones I kept closest to heart. Sharks are a real rite of passage, I feel like for I feel especially like boys. They are. I'm sure a lot of girls yeah. are into sharks too, but I feel like especially... Especially for boys. Yeah. And given all that, it's very strange that I did not watch Jaws until I was an adult, but I mean, less strange just by virtue of the fact that I loved sharks and Jaws was a movie that portrayed the shark as a, a villain to humans. And one of the earliest things I learned about sharks was the extent to which they were really not any kind of enemy of man whatsoever. Yeah. They're just like chill dudes hanging out in the seas eating everything. I've seen a lot of movies that beg to differ, Seth. I don't I don't Honestly, know how accurate your portrayal is. I was just always so fascinated with all the different species of shark. I loved learning how prehistoric sharks were and the fact that they were like these basically ancient creatures who'd survived and adapted up until right now. I had a pretty similar fascination though a bit less so with like alligators because being from New Orleans and literally growing up near the swamp, I got to see alligators all the time when I was a kid. It was another thing where, I mean, I could definitely tell that 
alligators had more of like a dead-eyed killing machine vibe to them, but I would always love to see them, and snakes really always fascinated the hell out of me. Like I said, I love to go to the aquarium, and they the one in New Orleans had a tremendous shark tank with like I think something like 15 or maybe 20 different species of shark. And also there was like a little petting pool like that had, you could like pet sharks. Yeah, I absolutely loved creatures and they were a big entree for me into wanting to learn about just biology and nature and to study other kinds of animals. For that reason, and because I was just so interested in them for such a long time, they never really scared me per se, you know? And I I did have a fear of very deep water, but that was more just out of a sense of respect for water and respect for how many different creatures were in incredibly deep water and knowing that that was not my domain and that I did not belong there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, but but Chris, I am very excited to hear your creature fears. You're very pro-creature. <laughs> I am unabashedly pro-creature. And no, no creature traumas to, to speak of. Literally, the one thing I can think of is, like, the only time I was stung by a wasp. I got endless bug bites from ants. Mosquitoes used to eat me up. The mosquito population in New Orleans is insane during the summer because it's, like, 300% humidity and there's standing water everywhere. So I got eaten up by all kinds of tiny insect creatures. But I loved insects, except for the one time that I was bitten by a wasp. I was on my neighbor's swing set. I was just, like, swinging on a swing. Could not be more of a carefree little guy. And I saw the wasp, like, flying toward me in slow motion. I don't know if I swatted at it first or if it just, like, went in and stung me first. But I think it just went in and stung me. But it stung me on my solar plexus on my chest. (laughs) Which is an area that I would not even have imagined was stingable. Or (laughs) was in any way a value-rich target for a wasp. I guess the guy was just pissed, and it knocked the wind out of me. I think more just out of shock and surprise than anything else. And it went away and stopped hurting like after a day or so, really. But it just shocked the hell out of me. And I don't think I've ever been stung by a bee. I generally have good relationships with the insect kingdom. I pride myself on my my insect uh my kindness and generosity and they yeah. understand that you have a but good communications relationship with them yeah we're chill with each other most of the time but that wasp just did not like the cut of my jib he did not like the swing in my step and he made it known and i'm gendering him because i can presume it was a guy hmm. yeah i feel like the first bee sting is also a bit of a rite of passage for childhood like you know that bees are dangerous from a very early age and you know it's going to happen at some point because i just feel like it's inevitable that you'll get stung by one bee wasp whatever at some point and you know it's coming but you don't know when and it's a, it's a very suspenseful thing and then it happens and it hurts a lot <laughs> yeah. i don't know that there's yeah. A lot to milk out of that uh, statement, but I, no. And I tried to milk the injury for sympathy for several days, and my parents were just like, "This was going to happen at some point." Yeah, I'm like, God damn it! Wow, um, <laughs> I am not a friend to all creatures. <laughs> I am shocked by this. <laughs> great or small, I like the great ones actually. Okay, it's mostly the small ones I don't like. Yeah, dinosaurs you love. Mm-hmm. Like if dinosaurs were here now, they would be your best friends. I mean, similar to you, I loved going to the zoo and aquarium as a kid. I do really love animals and creatures. Like <laughs> learning about them, watching them. I could I can go to a zoo and like just sit 
in front of a display. I don't want to call it a cage because it's not really a cage because they try and frown upon, you know, that. But <laughs> it's a containment, containment device. And just, like, watch, like, a creature for, like, an hour just because I'm just so interested in what it's doing and how it behaves. So I do like a lot of creatures. I had a shark phase like you did. I loved whales. Oh, yeah. I loved whales, too. Absolutely. And I I grew up in the Pacific Northwest where we had whales and had like very close encounters with whales once or twice. So, so I want to preface what I'm about to say, you know, not saying that I am like anti-creature. PETA does not need to come after me. (laughs) But there were two specific creature encounters that I I had to call out in this episode, both after my childhood and teen years, which, you know, I got stung by a bee at least like once, but didn't have any severe creature encounters. But as I was thinking of this episode, you know, I, I was thinking about, like, what creatures you're likely to encounter, knowing that you are from New Orleans and had, you know, likely see alligators or something. That's something that I definitely would not have run into up in Washington State at any point, unless it was in a zoo. So what we had were bears and occasionally, like, a big cat, like a cougar, but those are pretty skittish, even more so than bears, so you're unlikely to see them. So I had encounters with bears that were very friendly. Um... <laughs> We had a condo in a fishing village and the bears would just come to the dump and hang out there, you know, because they could get food there. And they they were like the laziest bears, like the least threatening bears. Like you didn't go out and like pet them or anything, but you kind of felt like you could have. Like they just seemed unthreatening, which is really just asking to be like attacked by one of them because your guard is down. We had bears around, you know, we were used to that. I had pet rats growing up, so... Whoa. Yeah. You? I was I was Willard. <laughs> oh my god. You'll get that reference later in this episode when I talk about Willard. <laughs> I think it was mostly like my sister drove this thing, but we, anyway, we had pet, little, little pet rats that would like crawl all over us and like they would go like in your shirt and, or like crawl up the back of your neck, so... You know, like, rats are something that I'm totally fine with. Never really had an issue with rats. Okay, your your rodentary predilections are a total discovery to me. Really? Through your face, your nonchalant description of this, you seem like you think that this is normal, but that's it's not... pretty normal. People have hamsters and... They have hamsters and or guinea pigs, but a pet rat is not a super everyday pet. Maybe not, but I mean, they're very small, but they're not like the gross rats that you like associate with rats. They're very clean, actually. They're extremely clean. Yeah. And I had friends who had pet rats growing up. It's just that you in particular have never struck me as the rat friendly type. I don't seem ratty. Well, I guess that's a good thing. (laughs) Yeah. You just, you don't seem ratty. I don't know that I would have rats now. Like, I'm not sure that they're the most appealing pet that I would get on my own, but for some reason, that was what we got. I I don't remember whose decision it was, why we didn't get a gerbil or hamsters instead. I'll have to inquire about that, but for now, I do not know. But That's awesome. I love um, that. But so I'm very comfortable with, you know, rats crawling on me, which does not happen very often anymore. (laughs) Tis a pity. I speak of all these other kinds of creatures that you may encounter as a child or teenager in order to offset what I'm about to say about the creatures I am not friendly with, which are bugs. I do not like bugs. 
Wow. I don't think I ever did. I definitely was not like into bugs as a kid. I don't remember being particularly afraid of them as a kid, but I do not like them. I mean, I don't know what else to say. And like it's, spiders in particular. I really hate spiders. And I have had a couple of encounters. Encountering I, the eight-legged xenomorph? Yes. I, yeah. I would call them a creature feature in my life or in my nightmares. So the first one, because Becky's not here in actuality, I think she can be here in spirit because she was involved in one of these <gasps> stories. Not a spider, a cockroach. But was it a cockroach or was it a horse? I don't know because <laughs> the size was somewhere between those two things. Okay, okay. I've told her about this and I don't think she remembers it. It is seared into my memory. I mm-hmm. know it happened. Mm-hmm. So she was moving out of one of her college apartments. So everything had been kind of cleared out and there was like a big empty space on the floor. And so I think we had disturbed its resting place, which was under the entire house, apparently, because that's how big it was. And and I remember I was talking to Becky and I stopped in the middle of a sentence and just ceased talking because I saw this thing that I just froze and couldn't even like believe what I was seeing. Lost the power of speech. Yes. Okay. Okay. Realistically, it was more about the size of a very large lemon, maybe, but that's still a really big (laughs) cockroach. Small pony, big lemon. Yeah. Yeah. And luckily there was, I believe, raid or something like (laughs) handy because, you know, they'd been cleaning out under the sink. Mace bear spray. (laughs) Just a big club. Yeah. 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 Uh, And I sprayed (laughs) the entire can on it. Did you come to several minutes later after the fumes subsided? (laughs) I stopped breathing for a while, but I needed to use the entire can because it did not die. And like for a full like minute, I was like spraying it continuously and just kept going it was horrifying it was the most like a monster i've ever seen anything like actually look because you know bugs are usually so small that you can't really make out a lot of individual features but when they're that big they really look like a monster i mean did it have a kind of personality did it say your name or becky's name and like don't leave me i believe it was trying to mimic me (laughs) okay Okay, you almost got mimicked. Yeah, so that's creature feature number one. Creature feature number two was in my last apartment, I encountered a black widow spider, which I did not know lived in California, especially in... Well, I knew they lived in California. I did not know they lived in Los Angeles. (laughs) Especially, like, the part where people are, you know, where I'm not, like, up in the mountains, you know, it's a populous area. And there was just a black widow, like, chilling mid-air in my closet, which was open. So, like, I basically just walked by and saw, like, a spider in midair. It definitely was a Black Widow. It had the little red hourglass on it. And those are, you know, by the way, very venomous. I believe it's, like, pretty, like, intense for them to actually, like, kill a human. But it can happen. Yeah, it can happen. It rarely happens. And, yeah, again, from everything I've learned, they tend to try to avoid people. Well... My closet is not a very good place to avoid me. (laughs) Anyway, so that was pretty traumatizing. I'm pretty sure I also use about a full can of Raid on that, or maybe some kind of household cleaning equivalent. Febreze. (laughs) Not strong enough. It's the freshest smelling corpse ever. Often bleach. I I like to bleach (laughs) them. (laughs) I'm amazed you didn't go for a homemade flamethrower, but okay. I almost did. I mean, it's one of those things that I I had to really strategize what to do with it, because I knew if I struck and it like skittered away I was gonna have to move and probably burn the building down yeah like there's no way there's no way around it so I already (laughs) didn't like spiders but that did not help and I would say I am a genuine arachnophobe 
I know wow. it's irrational because, you know, most of them are harmless. I mean, irrational is one word. Bigoted is another one. Yeah. Well, I'm speciesist uh, wow. against that species. It's just the way I was brought up. I can fully understand, especially hitting cockroaches, because they're relentless, devilishly opportunistic as far as like where they can live, where they can show up, what corners they can pop out of. Yeah. I've had cockroaches coming out of every corner of my apartment. I do freely admit that I have a pre-shower ritual of checking for present or lingering cockroaches. Normally, they graciously visit my kitchen instead of my bathtub, because there is just something uniquely galling and scary about something crawling up from the drain pipe where things are just only supposed to go down. Mm-hmm. And it's a vulnerable place. Like, I mean, exactly. there's a reason that they have scenes in some of these movies, you know, in, in a bathroom, in a <laughs> shower. I will also say that, like, again, spiders were a big one of my loves from really early on. And they're just very agile, powerful creatures, especially for their size. So I can understand being scared by them. Learning about those spiders at such a young, tender age inoculated me against being afraid of them. But it also very much taught me respect for them and taught me, you know, which ones it was okay for me to like, you know, when I see one, grab and take it outside. With your actual flesh or do you like is there a barrier so like if it's a tiny house spider or more often if it's like a daddy long legs type of situation which are not technically arachnids you know they just look like very small spindly spiders i'll maybe take those in my hand but most of the time i'll get a paper towel you know or a sheet of printer paper and just like corral it and and smash it really hard right oh no that's that's what i do i try not to nowadays learning about how integral both spiders and bees are to all of the processes of life on earth like literally even down to like pollinating crops but in terms of like spiders the extent to which they help control natural insect populations of the ones that really are like disease carriers like ticks and fleas and mosquitoes i know yeah so like it's i'm not like a militant vegan about it like i'm not knocking people for their understandable fears but like i've tried to not smash those types of bugs at least in this part of my life that's fair i'm definitely very biased by size so the bigger it is the more i must kill it totally get it very small spider like i'm not afraid of like those really really tiny ones i don't care it's like you're too small for me to even care what you're thinking <laughs> You're also too small to plot against me, clearly. Exactly. Clearly. If they're outside, it's fine. You know, it's like I, I don't go into their territory and like start hunting them down because. <laughs> I I realize they're important for the ecosystem. But if you come into my turf and you're not paying rent, you've got to go. It's a predator situation then. The way you've got to go is through death. Yeah. Yeah. You're the master of your domain. Mm
So as we were selecting which of the many movies that fall under this category to talk about, uh, I thought it was important for us to kind of ask and define what exactly is a creature feature. So if you define it broadly, I think there are all sorts of movies that can fall into this category, and if you look online, they will be put under this category. One category that I exclude from my own personal definition is extraterrestrial. Absolutely. Alien, The Thing, Predator, Men in Black, you know, we've covered a lot of those movies even on this podcast. A lot of them can be considered creature features, and I I get it. Like Alien, it is a a creature, but I think it's an invented creature. It's not one that actually exists that we know of. If xenomorphs are real, I would also spray them with Raid. And also, a lot of the terror and fear of it isn't just from the creature design, but from the fact that it's from somewhere other than Earth and invading and coming into our domain. Yeah, and they also, they generally have more of a plan, you know, they're more advanced than, like, your typical actual creature. So that's one category. Another, uh, Supernatural. So there's Gremlins, The Evil Dead, and American Werewolf in London. The Mm. X-Files had a lot of, um, both alien creatures and, uh, Earth mythical creatures. So, you know, a lot of times vampires, zombies, ghosts have creature elements. Sometimes they're more creature-like than others and are sometimes lumped in with these movies. I think those are also very different. Yeah, again, very different. A lot of times it's like about the supernatural forces at work and not about the earthly nature of them. Then the next category is science run amok. <laughs> so the fly, the brood, pretty much anything David Cronenberg has ever worked on or even looked at. <laughs> Swamp Thing, Reanimator, The Island of Dr. Moreau. And these are all kind of Frankenstein-esque stories where the creatures are lab created, which I think is a little bit closer to the classic creature feature sometimes, but also often is a very different thing. Now, what I really consider a creature feature is the nature run amok genre or nature horror. Generally, these are about an animal or animals found in nature, or at least closely related to an animal that we know from the real world. You know, there's some liberties often taken with that. And yeah, there's a bit of wiggle room. <laughs> literally. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah, mutation or scientifically altered, um, as we'll talk about in several of these movies. But in general, they are based in a naturally occurring beast of some kind. And then, of course, there are genre hybrids that combine different elements of these different genres. So, like, Pet Cemetery is, like, nature run amok, but also supernatural. Jurassic Park is science run amok and nature run amok. So, you know, there's a lot of blending of genres in these. But pure nature run amok movies are the ones that we're mostly going to be talking about today. Again, there will be liberties that we'll have to, you know, kind of suss out in, in the individual individual movies, but I like to think of a creature in a creature feature as something that behaves like an animal from instinct and doesn't have a motive beyond like food or survival or territory, you know, driving it. It doesn't have like a master plan. It does not transform into a creature like a vampire or a zombie or something or like werewolf. that. Or werewolf. Yeah. It cannot be humanoid. It has to be a real creature. It should in most cases be creature sized, maybe a very big version of a creature, but still... <laughs> relatively creature size, not like a gigantic monster. Yeah, we're just talking about our ideal creatures. Yeah. This This is really just what I put on my Tinder profile. Because there's also monster movies, and that, I think, encompasses, like, a bigger genre and literally a bigger (laughs) kind of creature than some of the movies that we're going to be talking about. So a little background on how creature features evolved. 
I mean, really, cultures have had creature features in their legends, really, for all time. Vampires and werewolves and those kinds of things are really old myths. Sasquatch, Loch Ness Monster, like, various areas have different versions of their own creature features. One of the greatest novels ever written is a creature feature, Moby Dick. Oh, I was going to say the Bible, but okay, Moby Dick too. Yeah, uh, Burning Bush, is that a creature? (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, there are lots of creatures in the Bible. That would be a great horror movie. It's just a burning bush that (laughs) relentlessly, like, pops up and starts speaking to you. So, in the movies, early examples of creatures are Nosferatu in the 1920s, which, again, is more of a vampire. But he was, he's claws, he's creature-like. There were also early adaptations of Moby Dick. In the 30s, you had the Frankenstein and other universal monsters coming up. And then in 1933, King Kong, the granddaddy, basically, of Creature Feature, even though he is a large, giant creature. Uh, There was also a movie called The Sea Bat, which was a romantic melodrama that has a small part for a killer manta ray. Is there a romantic part for The Sea Bat? (laughs) I'm not sure. I was not able to watch this Does he find his romantic match? (laughs) I don't know. In the 40s, there was The Devil Bat... Starring Bella Lugosi as a scientist who unleashes giant killer bats on his enemies. Very nice. creature featurey. And then we started getting the B movies that we talked about in our episode on The Thing and the Fly. Both of those were remakes of creature features. In the 50s, you had The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, with effects by Ray Harryhausen, who is a stop motion legend whose work influenced a lot of the filmmakers that we're going to talk about in the upcoming films. Movies like Them, about giant killer ants, Attack of the Crab Monsters, Attack of the Giant Leeches, lots of Attack of the. Earth versus the Spider, the Killer Shrews, which I did watch a few minutes of. <laughs> were they not able to be tamed? <laughs> oh, they were barely even able to be filmed. Oh, no. They were plastic. <laughs> These movies had a lot of scientists in them, a lot of giant creatures, a lot of tiny budgets. <laughs> were there no giant scientists in them? How was that not a thing? The attack of the giant scientist. <laughs> I would be willing to bet that it's somewhere out there. And then in 1954, there was Godzilla, which, like a lot of these movies, was a response to nuclear terror, depicting cataclysmic city-destroying events. Around this time, like the genre really gets away from like natural creatures and is really into big creatures as sort of a metaphor for right. that kind of terror and less about like real animal behavior. Then in the 60s came The Birds by Alfred Hitchcock, of course. It was one of the first movies that I could find that was just using an animal that was normal-sized, like, found in nature, no scientific experiment gone awry or supernatural explanation. And what I think is interesting about The Birds is that it was released in 1963 when Hitchcock was really at the peak of his craft. He had just released Vertigo, then North by Northwest, and then Psycho. Holy shit. All in a row. Psycho, being his most successful film, could not have been more popular at this moment, and chose to do The Birds, which gets made fun of a little now, but like even just on paper sounds like kind of a silly B-movie, honestly. And he really elevated that to like an A-movie that was, uh, you know, very influential and popular, but definitely was a swing. Like, I I feel like you could definitely like try and make that movie and miss pretty easily. I mean, I personally didn't see Birds until years after I had seen Psycho Vertigo and North by Northwest. Like, each of those three I would consider the pinnacle of almost any filmmaker's career. Like, the level of both filmmaking and storytelling and, you know, sheer fucking audacity and pulling it off. Like, those movies continue to blow me away. Seeing the Birds after those, I was like, the same guy made this movie? And, like, I get it. It is definitely a Hitchcock movie, but I would say it's... 
a cut below or being a bit more generous, it's intently and intentionally a B movie in a way that is a lot more obvious now, I think, with, like, decades of retrospect. I just see it as a very... I totally agree with you. Like, it is very much a swing. It definitely could have missed. And I think a lot of other filmmakers who had built up that much prestige wouldn't necessarily have chosen a project like that. Yeah, I mostly agree with you. And then in the 70s came Willard and Ben in 71 and 72, both about killer rats. Poor rats. I love you, rats. Um... (laughs) I watched Willard, um, which is actually, like, a pretty good movie about, like, a a loner, and it's relatively plausible for a movie about a guy who, you know, six killer rats on his enemies. (laughs) Only a couple of times. Not all the time. Okay, reduced sentence. It's only the couple murders by rats. The rats end up sentencing him in the end of the movie. Oh, spoilers. uh, He doesn't get off easy. The movie Ben is mostly notable for its Oscar-nominated song by Michael Jackson. (laughs) A a young Michael Jackson at this point. But the song was so successful that he named his second studio album after it. And so I just find it a little strange that one of the greatest superstars of all time, his second studio album is just named after a killer rat movie. That's just not something you see coming from Madonna or Mariah Carey. They didn't release a single to go along with the Willard remake with Crispin Glover? They weren't no, on that he soundtrack? recorded one. He recorded that song again. Oh, good. Oh, okay, good. I'm pretty sure I have not seen the movie. Then, of course, the 70s get you Jaws, which is really <laughs> the pinnacle of nature horror movies. Obviously, a killer shark. Nothing really tops a killer shark in terms of, you know, what scares people. And, and that movie is is obviously, like, very well-regarded. Launched Spielberg's career, became the first real, like, true summer blockbuster, and spawned a lot of imitations. Like, really kind of kicked off this genre in earnest, and that, like, if you if you say, like, animal attack movie, like, that's really the crowning jewel at the top of the very dead pile of... Yeah, pile of skulls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The 70s also had a remake of King Kong that I watched uh, for fun uh, with Jessica Lange. <laughs> oh, that was... Okay, that and was Jeff the 70s. Bridges. I knew about that, but I've never seen it. Yeah. You know, not not as good as the first one. Uh, and Alien, which was, you know, very influential as well. I would say the 80s were more influenced by Alien than they were by Jaws somehow, surprisingly. There were a lot of animal horror movies released, but they were mostly were very, very B movies, whereas there were a lot of bigger Alien movies that you can think of coming from the 80s, like Predator or something like that. There wasn't much of a Jaws equivalent, and I don't know if that was for lack of trying or just audience taste. I mean, also there were all those Jaws sequels, and I feel like those were mostly, like, 80s. Yeah, those were really, like, the studio attempt at redoing Jaws, like, literally. Um, and they bit off more than they could chew. <laughs> Sorry. I had to at some point. And really, like, right after Jaws, they went back to becoming B-movies again. Like, there wasn't yeah. really a resurgence of, you know, quality movies like Jaws. They were low budget. They didn't have major directors or named stars. So here are some of the movies uh, released <laughs> in the wake of Jaws. You will find that most of them were named after the creature itself. Grizzly in 1976. Ants in 1977. Orca, also in 77. <laughs> Piranha in 78. I remember Piranha. Barracuda, also in 78. <laughs> Alligator in 1980. Slugs in 88. Mosquito in 95. Oh, wow. 
Occasionally, they are named after a physical feature, like a shark's jaws, such as in 1977's Tentacles. <laughs> there was also The Swarm in 78, John Frankenheimer's Prophecy in 79 about mutant bears. What? I, I watched I no idea. some of that, too. No idea. Really just gross-looking bears. I also watched Grizzly, which is hilarious, because it's mostly just, like, a giant bear arm. Like, they couldn't actually... They didn't go full bear. <laughs> They filmed a real bear sometimes, but it obviously wasn't, like, the giant killer bear that they... So they just had a giant killer bear arm that would come in and, like, swipe, and then limbs would go flying off. It's really something to behold if you... I believe they call that non-animatronics. <laughs> yeah. There's also a movie called Monkey Shines from 88 by George Romero. Are you familiar with that one? I am familiar with Monkey Shines. I have not seen it, but it's one of those, like, so bad it's good movies that I've heard of. Yeah, it is a killer service monkey. I have seen it. It is worth checking out. Is it, is it serviceable? It is. It, um, it shines. I, I'm going to have to watch that movie. I'm going to have to. But my very favorite uh, one of these movies that I discovered um, in my research for this was from 1972, and it is called The Rats Are Coming, The Werewolves Are Here. Whoa. The title alone gave me whiplash. I am thrilled and terrified in two different directions at once. What confuses me is that <laughs> if the werewolves are already here, are you so concerned about that the rats are coming? Because I feel like the werewolves are the more immediate problem. Or, optimistically, the werewolves are going to take care of the rat problem. Hmm. You know, like, this could be a situation where one just solves the other. Well, maybe I'm, like, misreading the way that the title is <laughs> supposed to be pronounced. It's like, the rats are coming, ah, the werewolves are here. Yeah, I don't know. It all depends on tone. Um, I'm sure they struck a very careful tone in making this movie. Did you watch it? I watched the trailer, which told me everything I needed to know. I need some pets. Just what did you have in mind? Rats. <laughs> I'd like some rats. <laughs> Take someone you can hold tight. The rats are coming. I can change myself at will. They haven't eaten yet, you know. What are you talking about? The rats. They haven't eaten since I got the them. And I should think they would be very hungry by now. The man-eating killer rats are back. More gruesome, more terrifying than ever before. But they are not alone. The werewolves are here, too. Evil depraved, blood-sucking werewolves that will scare the pants right off you. You must take her to see. The rats are coming. The werewolves are here. So that's an, another example of a cross between supernatural and nature red amok. Amazing. And I love that in the trailer, they make rats like super large and italicize the font. But the werewolves is just, it's it's just in that sentence. It's just a normal, everyday, predictable werewolf arrival. Yeah, I believe the movie seems a little bit mistaken about which of those two creatures is the more threatening. Yeah, it's really a story about mistaken priorities uh, more than anything. So before we get all the way into the specifics of these six precious jewels, <laughs> I would like to just know what your own overall history with Creature Features is, since you are such a fan of Creatures, did you watch this genre growing up? Were you a fan? 
yes and yes. I absolutely loved creature features literally from like early childhood. I would watch, because I grew up having cable, I would watch the randomest movies on cable that I could find, the biggest, dumbest ones. Growing up in a neighborhood that had several mom and pop video rental stores, I saw every single video jacket for every single movie, not just that we're covering, but also the ones that you've just mentioned. Rented nearly all of them at one point or multiple times. Just from a super young age, I would always seek out these exact kind of big, dumb, loud, fun movies. These were also the kind of movies that I would love to like go see in theaters. Many of them that were rated R, I wouldn't be able to see as, as a child. But once I became a teenager, that was also the exact kind of movies I would go see with my dad in the theater to have like a guy's day out kind of thing. Especially during the summer months, you know, in the summer doldrums when like there's no school and nothing much going on. That's when, you know, these kinds of movies would all be dumped into theaters unceremoniously, and I would absolutely track down every single one. Yeah, for me, uh, Jurassic Park was the real gateway into this genre, as I think it probably was for a lot of kids at that point, because every kid in the world wanted to see Jurassic Park. I was the only one who was not allowed to, but that (laughs) is another story for another episode that we already talked about. You know, that definitely left me hungry for more. Jaws and the Birds were two of the first horror movies of any kind I saw. Wow. Pretty sure my mom rented them for us probably after I saw Jurassic Park, but you know, in the next couple of years, I think there's something about this genre that is more family friendly than other horror movies. Yes, very much. Which is kind of strange because it still involves people dying horribly, like, you know, all horror (laughs) movies do. But at least in my household, like, it was deemed the acceptable, you know, and we weren't watching you know, the most, like, gory of of these movies, but Jaws and even the birds are pretty, like, horrific. Like, they're more horrific than some of the movies that we're talking about today. And yet, I think they invite kids in a way, you know? Like, I guess maybe just because kids love animals so much, maybe maybe it's an early genre that kids are drawn to. I do feel like it was definitely, like, the genre of horror I was most aware of as a kid, and the one that, even if I didn't want to see all these movies right away, because I was a little afraid, like, I was more aware of them, and, like, they appealed to my kid sensibilities, even just the poster. I also think there may be something generational there, because I feel like for a lot of boomers, a lot of our, like, parents' generation, those were their most formative horror movie experiences that they had at a younger age. Hmm. As someone who didn't see Jaws or the Birds until I was an adult, especially in the case of Jaws, I was like, I'm glad I did not see this as a child. But I knew for a fact that my parents loved adored both of those movies that like for my mom she wasn't a super big fan of horror movies but like you know those were always two of her horror movie favorites same for my dad as well but I knew he was like more of a horror fan but I also would say that a lot of these creature feature type movies are more cartoonish in the way that they approach violence even when they are super gory it's not as invested in making those deaths like personally psychologically 
really devastating, emotionally impactful to you. There's a way that a lot of, if not most of these movies, draw their characters in a way that's kind of intentionally relatively thin, because the emphasis in the most important character is the creature, and it's featuring, and especially it's kills, you know? So I think in a similar way to how slasher movies operate, there's something that's kind of intentionally cartoonish and over-the-top about the violence in a lot of creature features that, in a way, I can totally understand why kids would gravitate more toward it, and why, in a lot of cases, I mean, it's, of course, very subjective, but I would see a lot of these as movies that wouldn't necessarily totally, like, destroy a kid's psyche watching them. Yeah, and, like, as you were saying that, it also makes me think that it's a kind of horror that kids can understand easily, much more so than a slasher movie where you have to, like, explain to a kid, like, that there are you know, slashers out, like, serial killers out there, or Supernatural, where you have to, like, assure the kid that that's not real. Like, kids understand animals and understand from a very early age that certain animals are dangerous and are fascinated by animals like sharks. You know what a shark is when you're fascinated by it, even at age, you know, five. You are excited by the shark, but you do not want to, like, be in a pool with it. Yeah, I mean, like, I know we're not going to talk about this movie, but thinking about these creature features also made me think of, like, The Blob, which was, like, I saw several versions of the movie The Blob Mm -hmm. when I was a child, and it's just, like, that's a movie that pitches itself, uh, there is Blob, Blob eat people, end of, end of pitch. (laughs) Like, that's the story, like, it... Takes mm. nothing to grasp that. You don't need any special explanations. You don't need a lore or a mythology. It's just the creature and it's going to eat people. Yeah. So by the time we got to like the second half of the movies we're going to talk about, like this was one of my genres as well. Maybe second to disaster movies because I really loved disaster movies. But I think there's a connection maybe between those in that this is like a different kind of natural disaster being attacked and eaten by nature. And what I always gravitated toward was the more realistic ones, the ones that felt like a creature that was realistic and would actually behave in the way that it behaves in the movie if you encountered it. Obviously, they're all heightened somewhat, but Jurassic Park even, you know, which is not the most plausible of any movie out there, takes so much time to set up the reality of that situation that you feel like it's completely believable once they actually get to the part of the dinosaurs escaping. So this just made me realize like how much I am attracted to horror movies that are grounded in reality and something that you could plausibly actually experience. So that will take us to Tremors. Uh, (laughs) Not a good segue because this is probably not something that we're ever going to experience. Speak for yourself. (laughs) I like Snakeoids. One of them comes near me and I'll just hit him with a five-pound pickaxe. No, you don't understand, Nestor. They come up from underneath the ground and they grab you. They sense the slightest vibration through the ground, even footsteps. That's how they hunt. Hey, so like we don't vibrate, right? Maybe they won't even come to here. Maybe they'll leave us alone. Chainsaw. That's what I'll use. Hey, 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 wake up! Now look! You see, they're headed right for us. Look, they trapped Edgar here, grabbed old Fred right here, nailed those two poor suckers on the road, and the doctor's place is right here. Now, this valley is just one long smorgasbord. We have got to get out. 
Tremors was released on January 19th, 1990. It was directed by Ron Underwood, starring Kevin Bacon, Fred Ward, Finn Carter, Victor Wong, Ariana Richards, Michael Gross, and introducing Reba McIntyre. Hell yes. The tagline was, The monster movie that breaks new ground. <laughs> In the film, the town of Perfection, Nevada, is besieged by an underground menace that threatens to completely wipe out its population of 14 people. Giant worms, dubbed Graboids, start pulling residents into the earth, and a small faction of survivors, including two freelance handymen and a visiting graduate student studying the strange seismic events, fight to stay above ground. The creature count is four Graboids in this film. Good, I can confirm. I did my own science on this, did my own counting, and you're right. Very clearly laid out in the film that there's four. They are are very confident that there are only four of them. <laughs> like, <laughs> I know, I know that. Uh, <laughs> I was like, I don't think you've taken a full head count here. Yeah. The film was written by Brent Maddock and S.S. Wilson, who had just made Short Circuit. Oh, wow. I had no idea. Their original working title for the film was Land Sharks. <laughs> right. <laughs> which had that. to be changed because there was also an SNL skit about land shark that's like an all-time classic snl sketch mm-hmm. i yeah i did i did learn that fun fact their next title was beneath perfection Ooh, that's really good i kind of want to just steal that for something else yeah it, I, I like that i i, I think i'd prefer that it's probably too subtle for a poster it's but. too much of a thinker it really is the graboid creatures were modeled after various animals including elephants crocodiles dinosaurs rhinos slugs and catfish I can totally see that. Not actually any worms. And originally they had a fleshy covering to protect their heads until the crew realized that that made the graboids resemble giant uncircumcised penises. (laughs) So they nixed that idea. Good change. It's a good change that they circumcised the graboids. Yeah. The movie grossed $16.7 million on an $11 million budget. Uh, Not a hit. It debuted at number five, even though it was the only new release that weekend. (laughs) Wow. Born on the 4th of July was at number one in its fifth week of release, while The Little Mermaid, Steel Magnolias, and Driving Miss Daisy were also in the top ten. All movies uh, famously lacking graboids in them. Yeah. USA Today's Susan Lasazina said... The special effects are scream-worthy, the gore is minimal, and the humor has a folksy zing to it. (laughs) The New York Times' Vincent Canby said, Tremors is a jokey attempt to recreate the pleasures of those post-World War II B-pictures about commonplace creatures, ants, worms, flies, whatever, that through some horrible mistake, usually related to radiation, become voracious giants. Because the creatures in Tremors seem never to have been other than what they are, it is not easy to accept them as metaphors for anything except fire hoses running amok, which they sometimes resemble. Oh, Vincent. So, yeah, reviews were kind of mixed. More positive, but the movie really did not hit the mark with audiences at first. And it was kind of chalked up to bad marketing. This was also, like, January, so maybe not the best time to release this movie. Anyway, did you see Tremors when you were a kid? Yes. (laughs) I saw Tremors many times. I did not see it during a very long span of my life until in more recent years when we had a watch party and watched it. Yeah, I loved it as a kid. I I feel like a lot of the content of it, other than just the creature, was kind of lost on me. There was a lot, actually a lot of the context of it, even as straightforward as the setup of this movie is that just kind of didn't resonate and didn't reflect anything in my life so i didn't get a ton from it to me i lumped this in the same category with another creature feature we're not going to talk about which is called critters Mm. and that was about these like 
tiny piranha jawed gerbil kind of things. And I think that had at least one kill that was toilet based. So yeah, I feel like that probably made a much bigger splash for me at the time, at least as a child. But this is a movie that I've you know, come to rewatch several times in more recent years. I saw this several years after its release. It was one of those movies that seemed to be born to be at video rental stores and always seemed to be a new release for about 12 years. <laughs> Absolutely. It was always there and I knew I'd see it someday. And that day I came after I first saw Jurassic Park and somehow discovered that Ariana Richards was also in this movie. Ariana Richards, who, for those who don't know, this elementary school scream queen... <laughs> Was the the girl in Jurassic Park, young girl, who caught my eye at that time. One of Chris's earliest blondes. Indeed. <laughs> She's like 10 in this movie, and I was probably like 11 or 12 when I saw it, so I wasn't so much older. But still, like, the mystique of the exotic older woman that she was in Jurassic Park was a little <laughs> bit lost by the point that I actually <laughs> saw this movie. So I really just enjoyed it on the level of, you know, a fun creature feature. Surprisingly, I never, like, owned it on VHS or DVD. Like, I rented it probably just once and, and didn't really see it again. I don't think until, like Seth mentioned, we watched it. It was... Very early in the pandemic, in the first, like, couple of weeks, we did a virtual watch of of it on Netflix. It was a good movie to enjoy on a laptop screen while chatting old school, like, you're on AIM or something. So what did you think of Tremors this time around? Did it grab you? I was (laughs) graboided. I love this movie, and I can't even be equivocal about it, especially now having been neck deep in so many other creature features. This has everything I love in this type of movie. The creature is great. I love its design. Like, you listed off all of those animals, and I totally see the influence of all of them in this, but it doesn't feel like a ripoff of anything. It feels like its own original thing. I love the setting of this taking place in the desert. I have done like dozens of road trips driving between New Orleans and Los Angeles, and I've really come to see the desert as one of my very favorite places to be. I don't think I would want to live there, but I'd love to be there and to pass through it. The desert is such a beautiful and mysterious and absolutely ruthless place. Most horror movies are usually set in cities or towns, so I just especially love the locale and setting of this in the desert, in a teeny tiny place that only 14 people live in. I love how remote that is, you know, in the same way that I love that Alien is taking place in this, like, garbage truck of a ship at the edge of the galaxy. Plus, it's got Kevin Bacon and Reba McIntyre. You can't do better than that. You just can't. And I mean, I've got a lot of other notes on it, but, like, I also just especially love the kills in this movie, which are, in my mind, like, all really creative and very creatively pulled off. To me, one of the moments that stood out the most was actually a kill that happens off-screen, where the Graboid eats the town's doctor, and after it eats the town's doctor, the doctor's wife hides inside their station wagon, whereupon the Graboid devours the whole entire station wagon. But it quickly cuts away from their vehicle and just shows a very wide shot of two headlight beams flickering up into the desert night sky, and then cutting out one after the other. And that one shot alone is among a lot of 
moments in this movie that are a cut above or many cuts above basically what any other creature features would do. They're punching way above the weight class even of this movie itself. <laughs> it's definitely a low-budget movie, but swings for the fences, especially compared to, you know, where this genre kind of headed later on, getting much bigger budgets. I think this movie uses the hell out of every single dollar. Like, every single bit of it is on screen. It just works so well, and I find its balance between its humor and its horror elements to be, like, just, again, like, right on the money. Like, I just think they nailed it. I absolutely love this movie, and I feel like it's one that I'm gonna keep re-watching. So am I, because I bought it. <laughs> oh my god, amazing. In 4K, with yes. a collector's edition that had all these um, <laughs> special features. So this movie came to video, like, right when VHS was, like, exploding as, like, something that everybody had, you know? Like, obviously, VHS, like, came up through the 80s, but at this point, it was really when, like, it started becoming, like, everyone was going to the video store to rent movies every weekend. <laughs> there was even one of the special features, like, had a local news clip or something, but it was just, like, this, everybody's doing this crazy new thing! It may be the fastest-growing business in America, the sale of video cassette tapes that people buy or more often rent to play at home on their video cassette recorders. The tapes are sold in stores like this one. And with Christmas less than three weeks away, business couldn't be better. I love that because for me, it's completely associated with that time. Mm -hmm. And because of that era, I think in part, and also because of the movie, like it's really more than any of the rest of these become a cult film. I mean, in part because it did so poorly and that's kind of the base for a cult movie. It has to be like unpopular before it becomes popular, but it has this like goodwill toward it that is both, I think, in the movie, like, reflected, like, when you watch it, you feel it, but is also, like, then embraced by the fans of the movie. It has a goofy tone. It's not actually, like, that suspenseful. Like, you're definitely not scared while you're watching this movie. It's a very... It's a it's a perfect movie for, like, families or kids. Like, you, it could easily be, like, a gateway movie into horror for kids. Like, it's probably not gonna give you nightmares unless you're very, very sensitive. Or unless you live in the desert <laughs> yeah like it could it could it could i mean anything can really give you right. nightmares when you're a kid you never know but it just has this high school drama club feel to it like let's put on a show not because it like looks like cheap or shoddy or because it's poorly acted because I, I don't think either of those things are true i think it actually looks great for the budget that it has especially like after the restoration like i didn't watch it in 4k but i saw like the version i saw was from the most recently restored it looks great. Like, yeah. it looks, in especially the creature effects and everything, look great, because it's all practical. Yeah, there's not a single CG shot in this, because that was barely a thing. I think that there had been, like, very, very minimal, like, CG, like, using, like, The Abyss um, and a couple, maybe a couple other movies. But it really didn't become a widespread thing until Jurassic Park. And it's very much the movie it set out to be. Like, it feels like the vision was executed. And in those special features, like, it kind of confirmed what I felt like was that this felt like a communal thing. Like, everyone was, like, working really hard at it. Like, there was a lot of passion in it, in the creature design, in the writing, in the direction. It was Ron Underwood's first film. There was just so much passion in it, and I think you can really feel that. And I don't think that's something that's very common for this genre. I think it's often feels like, well, I guess we're making this. Like... <laughs> 
Yeah. In these movies. It kind of a lot of times even on screen you can see the regret in the actors' faces that they took this role. Yeah. And it's and it's not to say that the script of this movie isn't profoundly silly. No. But, but yeah. But knowingly so, and in a way that works. Uh, Kevin Bacon was actually one of those actors who, upon getting the script, really was like, oh my god, like, my career is dead. I'm getting this <laughs> script, and I'm having to accept it. Because he wasn't getting the leading man roles that he thought he would get after Footloose. Like, his career really didn't take off in the later 80s. After this, he basically started taking supporting roles and realizing that he had to become like more of a character actor because he wasn't going to be Tom Cruise or yeah, that's interesting. So this is our first Bacon, uh, believe it or not. I mean, we've made it so long with no Scorsese, no Coppola, and no Bacon. Yeah, I feel like this is the movie that maybe you can trace back because Kevin Bacon is almost a meme now. I mean, and was before memes existed because there was the whole six degrees of Kevin Bacon thing, which was kind of like a meme before memes. He was a viral person. Yeah, but like this, I feel like was the movie that like needed to happen for him to become kind of like that level of you love him, but also are kind of laughing at him, but not in a mean way. You like him, but also because he's clearly in on this the silliness and has that kind of amiable, somewhat goofy nature. Yeah, he definitely commits, as everyone does. You know, there are actors, I think, in in some of these movies who look mad that they're in the movie. Oh, yeah. And no one in this movie is like that. They are all really trying to have fun and I think genuinely having fun. Bitch. Knocked itself cold. Called my ass. He's dead. We killed him. We killed it. Fuck you! Yeah, especially the last part of that I think is important because it's like not just that they're, they're like all going for broke. They understand the goofiness and they're actually having fun with it. One of the first notes I wrote was like, why does this feel like city slickers? Because like, it, <laughs> it doesn't start with a horror scene as you would expect a movie like right? this to. In fact, there was one that was cut out with a mule being eaten, which is actually, it's on the Blu-ray. It's actually a really good scene. I think they should oh, have wow. loved it. Interesting. They probably cut it for pacing reasons, but I do think it set the tone a little bit better because the opening is really just like the banter of Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward as these two handymen who are deciding that this is like their last day in this tiny town. And the soundtrack is very harmonica driven, very (laughs) probably my least favorite thing about this movie is the soundtrack. I think it very much matches the tone and the locale, but it's a bit discordant. And the decade. Yeah. Or the, the specific year. Yeah. Yeah, but it's all, it is a bit discordant, I think, with kind of what the movie is going for. Yeah. And I somehow had thought that this was a Joe Dante movie when I was rewatching it because it also feels a little bit like Gremlins. I can totally understand that. Yeah. Um, so when I wrote, like, 
why is this like city slickers? I thought I was being, you know, like coming up with a clever comparison before I realized that it is directed by the director of city slickers. Oh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> and it really does feel like city slickers plus some giant worms. Yeah. But I mean, I, I wanted to specifically call out the, the relationship of Val and Earl. Like, first of all, Kevin Bacon's character is named Valentine McKee. And if that's not a fucking movie name to, like, beat the pants off of almost every other movie character name ever, I don't know what would be. Like, Valentine McKee. Goddamn. But I just especially love the relationship between Val and Earl, who's Fred Ward's character. In these movies, you don't see... Most of the time, most of the characters are not super fucking poor guys. Like, just fucking poor. You can tell these guys have basically been poor likely all their lives. You can tell that they found each other a long time ago and that they are, like, blood brothers now. They tease the hell out of each other, but they're just, they're each other's ride or die. And they're the kind of characters where you know that each of those people has seen so much shit in their lives already before this movie began. And again, a lot of the characters, and especially the lead characters in these types of movies, typically don't have much going on under the surface. And this doesn't really delve into their backstories or anything, because it doesn't really need to. But you can tell that there's more to these people than just the plot of this movie and in a way that just sells everything else makes everything else hit that much harder for me at least and like it feels like they've been together through life since they were kids like they literally early on in, in the second act they do a game of rock paper scissors mm-hmm. to see who's gonna try to outrun the graboid and like run to safety and they have this exchange with each other like one says like good luck shithead and the other guy says oh don't worry about me jerk off and like it doesn't have to be the most deep like emotional heart-to-heart conversation for me to really get the idea that these characters are like human beings and even in a movie as deliberately goofy and funny as this that has such a light tone to it that added a lot to it and really grounded it for me in a way that just elevates the whole movie If you wanted, we could uh, take a look at those uh, uh, seismographs for if you want. What the hell do we know about seismographs? Nothing. There sure might be a slick way to get snore. Why? Damn it, Valentine. You don't go for any gal unless she fits that stupid list of yours from top to bottom. Well, sure. Yeah, and it's dumber than my hind end. I mean, like that, that uh, Bobby Lynn Dexter. Tammy Lynn Baxter. Don't matter. They're all the same. Dead weight. Ooh, I broke a nail. <sighs> Makes my skin crawl. Well, I'm a victim of circumstance. I thought you'd call it your pecker. Yeah, they definitely feel as game. I mean, they're the lead, so maybe they're the most game. But yeah, in a genuine way that definitely feels different than a lot of relationships and these kinds of movies that feel forced, you know, that feel like the actors literally just met that day and will never speak again after the scene. Yeah, and acting as if they're just reading their backstory with the other character that they're supposed to be in some kind of lifelong or committed or intense relationship with. Yeah, you could definitely write some fan fiction about these two if you you so chose to. (laughs) So I will say, I, I really admire this movie. I really enjoy this movie. As a creature feature... I mean, it has a great creature, 
but it doesn't always entirely deliver on what I personally like from a creature feature, which is that sort of believability. Obviously, this is the most like outlandish of the creatures that we're going to talk about because it's not a, a real creature. It is based on some real creatures. It feels like an animal, not like a supernatural creature or something like that. It definitely has animal-like behavior, but is obviously not something you encounter in real life. But it doesn't quite have like the thrill level. Like the tone is a little bit turned toward jokey and folksy more so than thrilling and suspenseful. I think I would like it more personally if it just had a little bit more of that kind of suspense, I guess, or, you know, a little bit more of a sense that like people were really in danger. When people die here, it is kind of more silly. You're not m really mourning the people who are gone. Like it, it, they're kind of fodder and it's kind of obvious like who's going to go. Like they, they don't kill off like any of the, like the super likable characters. So they don't kill off Melvin, the snotty little shitty teen kid. Yeah. Like the moment he appears on screen, I'm like, I, I want this kid to die. <laughs> well, I, I was kind of rooting for Melvin. I don't know why. Maybe just because I thought that he did seem like he was going to die. So maybe I, I felt like invested in his survival just as a matter of uh, needing to place my sympathy with the character most likely <laughs> to go. Because he was the only one who didn't die that I thought might. But yeah, this movie doesn't have a mean spirit, which I actually like, but is almost a little bit too, like, touchy-feely, like, for its own good. But then again, not, because obviously it has such a following and is can appeal to a lot of people who maybe even don't necessarily like horror movies or creature features. It's a very easy movie to embrace. There's a lot of group cheering in this movie. There is. Bert got one! He killed one! Way to go, dude! There's a pole vaulting scene that I find a little bit... I think it's the music, and apparently that was supposed to be a more suspenseful scene, and they, like, changed the tone of it to be more, like, we were pole vaulting through the desert, but... Okay, because I liked that scene primarily because, like, it's Rhonda, who's, like, the graduate, graduate student scientist person, who's the one who figures out that they can, like pull vault from boulder to boulder and like avoid going on the sand which is where the graboids come out from and where they hunt i like the fact that you know the two leads are like real working poor like desert rats they're not total idiots but they would be totally fucked without ronda and they would all be fucked without like the smarts and firepower and little like, literal explosives of uh burton heather gummer who's reba mcintyre and husband <laughs> Michael Gross, yeah. Yeah. It definitely is, like, a much lighter touch of a movie. But I do appreciate the fact that the even the supporting characters in this are not just plot devices. Their smarts and their own intelligence and personality and skills are essential to the lead's, you know, success in the movie. And, like, without those other characters coming into their lives, they would have been completely screwed. <laughs> We just stay where it can't get us. On these residual boulders. My truck's parked right next to one. Stay on those residual boulders. And Tammy Lynn Baxter. Too much pole vaulting. 
Yeah, I do like how the characters feel like humans and they behave like humans, not like people who need to be eaten by worms, <laughs> which is <laughs> how a lot of the supporting characters end up feeling in a lot of uh, creature features is just totally. like they need to behave stupidly so that they can be eaten by something. Yeah. I also enjoy the character of Rhonda. She's not an actress that I like recognize from anything else. I don't think Me she's neither. in very much else. Like there, at one point she has to take off her pants. She's caught in barbed wire, right? Is that it? I think that's it. Yeah. And even though that on paper feels like, how do we get this woman out of her clothes? It doesn't play like that at all. And it, it doesn't play like that at all. And it like, I remember the moment, like I remembered her like being in her pants but like then it happened and i was like oh that's like absolutely does not take any of the exploitative turns that i would expect that to take yeah there is a lot of like phallic imagery in here obviously the graboids are tubular and (laughs) fleshy and turgid yeah And then their mouth opens, and more phallic things come out of their mouth. Right. It's, it's it's another decoy mouth, which I really enjoy in a creature feature. I do a la too. Alien, I do too. the pogo stick, and the pole vaulting. There's just <laughs> there's poles everywhere. It's a movie full of poles. I really enjoy it. like the creatures are gross and imaginative. They have this gross orange blood that is very unusual. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot of like craft that went into that creature on a pretty low budget. I admire that. I think it's funny. <laughs> The premise of this movie is basically just the floor is lava, like... Exactly! And it could be, honestly, even cheaper. You know, like, they actually go through the trouble of, like, showing, like, the creature, like, burrowing so that you see, like, the ground moving so it's not, like, totally, like, a $5 movie, but... Not only that, there are... I mean, I had to write this down because, like, there are a lot of really cool cutaway shots where the camera is moving as the graboids are digging underground. And so it's, like, an external, like two-thirds or three-quarter perspective view on them as they're, like, burrowing. And I thought that was really inventive. Really well done as well. Like, yeah, really well executed. I noticed that, too, because that's not a POV shot, because they're under the ground, and I think they're blind. They don't have eyes, right? But it moves with them so that you know exactly where they are. So it's... A lot of these movies kind of have POV shots, like, of course, Jaws famously does. (laughs) But, like, this isn't quite that. It establishes the same thing, but also almost in a more inventive way because it's it's more like establishing the proximity of the creature from the people and, and showing just like the way it moves and yeah they're really well executed yeah and i mean like to me that offset a bit of the silliness of it because i definitely see what you're saying in as far as like if they did slightly more budget they could have done you know a couple more kill scenes maybe or, or made some of those kill scenes a bit more suspenseful in a way that didn't cut away from the creature. But again, it's just like little touches like that, to me, just really elevated it. Yeah, and that scene that you pointed out with the station wagon being pulled into the desert, I think is like the sort of masterpiece scene of this movie, (laughs) where it's just like, that is like a perfectly executed horror sequence. It's still like, you know, fun, not super dark, but early in the movie, there are a lot of, I think, pretty good setups of suspense, but there's like an old man who's climbed up a tower and and just waited there because he can't climb down and building up this mystery of like why would this man not have just climbed back down i do think the the beginning of the movie has a lot of really great touches i'm not sure that the end has enough of the panache like the the action in the end is not that great like there's it there's a lot of like standing on rocks looking at the ground well and also i mean like i think we should talk about the way the graboid creature is eventually killed you know because there's so many scenes of militia uh weaponry assaults i genuinely love the like survivalist couple (laughs) 
into the wrong goddamn rec room, didn't you, you bastard? We killed it. You got that? We killed that mother humper. Come back. <laughs> uh, roger that, Bert, and uh, congratulations. Be advised, however, there are two more, repeat, two more mother humpers. I mean, you know, they are the kind of people where you could, like, think that you could predict the type of people they are just by looking at them and looking at their lifestyle. But they are humanists, you know? They're humanistic in the end, and at least altruistic in the sense where, like, you know, the rest of the townspeople do rescue them, but then they, you know, do their very best to keep everyone else safe. They definitely seem like they could have easily been killed off and written to be much broader and more like people you want to see killed off. Absolutely. They kind of have that in the beginning because they're a little bit pompous about their survival, which oh. usually signals death um, in these movies. And not only that, but they at the beginning, they kind of are insistent that they want to go back to their shelter and they don't want to deal with these people and they don't want to be, you know, dragged down by these other folks. Yeah. But yeah, the, the performances definitely saw those characters and make them people that are like it, it does become like i mean i guess it's a small town it feels like a bit of a like a team or a family like coming together like it's almost surprising that there were sequels made but like the whole gang didn't right. come back because they feel so integral to the story i'll definitely like concede that especially by the end like the way that the graboid is killed is just a literal Looney Tunes maneuver. <laughs> um, it's definitely like drawing a, a tunnel on a, a right. on it, the side of a mountain. Literally, uh, Kevin Bacon like Wiley e. Coyotes the graboid and like has it fall off of a cliff and crash to death on the on the you know rocks and deserts and below. It doesn't strike me as like bad goofy because that is certainly a tonal choice that the movie has made throughout. And so like to me that felt consistent. And I did kind of appreciate, you know, that like it wasn't actually destroyed by the IEDs that the gummers are building on their rooftop. It's not destroyed by some like futuristic laser space weapon. Like it literally is just like we figured out the one way to outsmart this otherwise very smart deadly creature yeah it works i mean it's very watchable i also enjoy that they purposefully avoid like trying to explain where they came from there's a point where kevin bacon like throws out like three different possibilities all kind of tosses them off like you know maybe they're prehistoric creatures or maybe they were a science experiment but none of that is given any like real consideration and it's really just that they appeared and then they get rid of them at the end but i would be much more concerned than they are that there is a fifth graboid oh yeah Got it. I got it. They're mutations caused by radiation. Or no, no, no. Government built them. Big surprise for the Russians. Well, there's nothing like them in the fossil record. I'm sure. Okay, so they predate the fossil record. Well, that'd make them a couple of billion years old. And we've just never seen one till now. Right. I vote for outer space. No way these are local boys. Well, haven't seen a sign for hours. Must be long gone. Yeah, must be. Hey, why don't you take a little stroll and find out? I did especially like that they did not undertake any ludicrous, long-winded explanations of why these creatures are here. Right, because we will get into other movies that do. We but sure will. 
<laughs> it never makes them scarier. It's like, oh, we built a bigger one. Okay, fine. Like, th- they do this with the Jurassic Park movies, the new Jurassic World movies all the time. They're like, we built a bigger, scarier dinosaur. It's like, no, the T-Rex in the first one is as big and as scary as you ever need a dinosaur to be. And you cannot outdo it. It does nothing but undermine the scariness of it because it actively removes the mystery. If there's no mystery at all, if there's nothing to guess at, it's not as scary. <laughs> Yeah, and exactly why Alien works as well, too. And they also yes. try and explain, like, the origins of Alien in, like, the newer movies. And it's like, just stop this. I don't I don't want to know where it comes from. I want to wonder where it comes from. Right, right. And I mean, my last note on this movie is that I love the idea of dynamite fishing, and I would love to try it sometime. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we have to finish this podcast, but then maybe we'll give it a try. I bet they offer that in Nevada. If not, like, in Las Vegas, then probably, like, right outside Las Vegas. <laughs> Oh, I'm sure. So Michael Gross, who played Burt Gummer, is uh, still at it, still very much at it. Oh, wow. These movies had a very robust life in the direct-to-video market, with six sequels so far. Whoa, okay. The original writers wrote and directed the first three sequels, and then exited the franchise, but that did not stop the franchise. This movie was followed by Tremors 2 Aftershocks in 1996, Tremors 3 Back to Perfection in 2001, Tremors 4 The Legend Begins in 2004, which is a prequel set in 1889. No! With Michael Gross playing his great-grandfather. Oh no! Does he have like a waxed mustache in that one? I did not watch the movie, but I imagine yes. Then Tremors 5 Bloodlines in 2015, Tremors, A Cold Day in Hell in 2018, and Tremors, Shrieker Island in 2020. So there is every possibility that another Tremors movie could come out. There was also a short-lived TV show of 13 episodes aired on Sci-Fi in 2003 with Michael Gross, Dean Norris, and Christopher Lloyd. Wow. So sequels are a thing with these movies. We'll we'll just put that out there now and we'll revisit that theme uh, a little bit later. Well, also, I I don't know if it came up in your research, but... Kevin Bacon himself attempted to, like, spearhead a relaunch of the series. I don't know if they actually filmed a pilot, but I know that Kevin Bacon and I believe Michael Gross and maybe some other of the original cast members and creatives behind it put together, like, a trailer for a new Hmm. Tremors. They would have been the same characters and would have picked back up decades after the first movie and would have been a genuine sequel. Apparently, I believe they, like, pitched it to sci-fi and sci-fi past. But yeah, it's like, to me, that's seems like kind of a no-brainer of an easy and super cheap thing to do that would get a whole lot of both fan support and like just like kind of kitsch interest and curiosity from people. Yeah, this is the kind of movie that I feel like deserves that kind of thing. I totally agree. A lot of movies don't and it's like just leave it, but this definitely would be like fun to revisit with this cast. I totally agree, like especially for the Kevin Bacon of it. And has a huge following now, so I I really don't understand why they wouldn't do that. I mean, I would expect that if that wasn't going to happen, it would be because the stars like didn't want to come back. Right. We know Michael Gross is up for it. He's basically done Tremors for, like, the last 30 years. Oh, lordy. I'm sure he has other things, too. But consistent Tremors. <laughs> and that will take us to Arachnophobia, our second creature featured. This film was released the same year as Tremors, 1990, on July 18th. It was directed by Frank Marshall, starring Jeff Daniels, Harley Jane Kozak, and John Goodman. The tagline was, Eight legs, two fangs, and an attitude. The itsy-bitsy spider! <laughs> Crawled up the washbout. Down came the rain and washed 
the sky round. <laughs> Out came the sun and dried up all the rain, and the itsy bitsy spider <laughs> crawled up the spout again. It's my turn now. Little Miss Muffin sat on a tuffet, eating her curds and whey, and along came a spider that sat down beside her and frightened Miss Muffin. Look, if you girls don't settle down, then Shelly can't stay over anymore. We can't sleep. We keep scaring each other. Well, why don't you two go sleep in my room for a while? Okay. Nah, we don't need this. The plot summary, when a local photographer's dead body is transported out of the bug-infested jungles of Venezuela, a killer spider hatches a ride to the peaceful small town of Canaima, California. Soon the citizens are dropping like flies, and the local town doctor, an arachnophobe, tries to get down to the bottom of the mystery, which turns out to be nesting in his very own backyard. The creature count is many, many, many spiders, but primarily featuring two, one known as a general and one known as a queen. Frank Marshall was a longtime producer of some very successful films of the 70s and 80s, including Paper Moon, Poltergeist, and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. He was also involved in many of Spielberg's films during this era, with Raiders of the Lost Ark as the first. For his directorial debut, he wanted something that would be less challenging than a serious drama, so he picked this movie and modeled the film on Hitchcock's The Birds. The opening in Venezuela was shot in a location never before used on film. The four-week shoot had to have all the food and equipment flown in, with five helicopters used to take the crew up into the mountains every day. I mean, that's crazy. 1990. Crazy. A time when you could film just like the opening sequence of your film, which is kind of superfluous in a lot of ways, and just have helicopter after helicopter flying you. It's fully superfluous in this movie. Yeah. My God. You can tell that he was a producer, because, like, I don't think... Absolutely. An actual, like, someone who was a director and working with another producer would have gotten his way on that. No. They clearly owed him one. The bird-eating tarantula used for the shot of the hitchhiking spider was named Big Bob, named after Robert Zemeckis. Spider Olympics were held to test which species of spider (laughs) would be featured in other scenes, running each species through 10 tests, including speed, climbing ability, and the reaction to heat and cold. Lemon Pledge was used to control their movements on set. Well, that feels like torture. I don't think they sprayed them with it. It was more like a guiding... Right. Spray to make them run away from it or something. Yeah. Spiders were put to sleep with carbon dioxide and affixed with tiny leashes... Oh my god. ...attached by wax to their abdomens. Tiny steel plates were glued to some spiders with wax. Electromagnetics behind a wall were then used to move them. This sounds like a series of schemes devised by a psychopath. Me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I've done all of these things. I feel like you did the creature effects on this, Chris. Uh, They were also chased with hair dryers. (laughs) Whom among us has not been? But nevertheless, spider safety was taken very seriously. They went out of their way to not kill any of the spiders. For the sound effect of spiders being crushed, fully artists stepped on mustard packages and potato chips. Arachnophobia grossed $53.2 million on a $22 million budget. The movie debuted at number three at the box office behind Ghost and Die Hard 2. The Washington Post's Rita Kempley said... We're back on the read a beat. We are. Back on the read a beat. Back on the read a beat. Back on the read a beat. I'm being paid for this, correct? Jeff Daniels gives Little Miss Muffet a run for her tuffet in Arachnophobia, a cobweb-covered <laughs> thrillomedy spun by Steven Spielberg and Disney Studios. 
It's Jaws without the chomp and Birds without the beak. A return to the spoofy scares of the 50s drive-in movies. This is Disney's idea of a fright fest. About as threatening as Jaws with Flipper in the title role. Not a fan, Rita. Not a fan, but still just brought it home. Really, just a thrillomedy. Owen Gleiberman of Entertainment Weekly said, Build as a thrillomedy. What an awful word. It sounds like somebody got sick from too many rides on the whip. The movie was co-produced by Steven Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment and Walt Disney Studios' new Hollywood Pictures division. Together, these two paragons of sweet-natured escapism have come up with a gross-out flick even Grandma could love. Arachnophobia will make you jump a few times, but it isn't a relentless primal scarathon like Jaws or Alien. It gives you the willies in a cheery, presentable way. Did you see Arachnophobia growing up? I know that my family saw Arachnophobia... I think it might have been like a home-taped VHS. I'm not sure. But yeah, it was one of those movies that I know members of my family saw, but I never watched it. I don't know. I just was not taken in by the idea of a spider-based horror movie. I know I must have seen it like at least once when I was an adult. Just at some point, I have no idea when, but clearly it wasn't like super memorable at the time. So yeah, this movie was pretty much totally brand new to me when I watched it this time around. I knew better than to watch this movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when I was pretty young, I always heard like other kids talking about it as a scary movie. I think because it was a scary movie that a lot of parents will let their kids watch. It's relatively family friendly. I think it's rated PG thirteen. Definitely not R, and definitely invites a family audience. I think I don't remember when I did see it exactly, but I think I saw it a couple of times as an adult. Always after bracing myself. The last time was a. Few few years ago around Halloween it was one of the movies like I put on with friends like because we were looking for something scary to watch and yeah I mean this movie has always uh, grossed me out so it's not a movie I can just like casually put on I'll say that two more well this is highly unusual so many spiders this size in such a confined area now look at the shape of the abdomen we must try to find a live specimen What the devil do you think you're doing? It was alive! Then you're ridiculous. It's just a spider. What's a big deal? It wasn't just a spider, Mr. Manley. It was potentially a new species of spider, isolated and unchanged for millions of years. All you could do is squash it. Professor! No está muerto. It's incredible que sobrevives de donde vienes. No está muerto. That's impossible. They should be dead. Very aggressive. We'll take two back alive and preserve two. What did you think watching it now? Like, I will say this movie was surprisingly good. I mean, I didn't expect it to be shitty, you know, but I just think it's like, it's very competently made. I like a lot of the cinematography in it. And it's clearly a movie about people in denial, which I find to be a really interesting thematic element. I don't think that that is explored as much as I would have liked it to be 
especially not really through the characters. It feels very much like both an Amblin movie and and kind of a Joe Dante movie, but it pulls back from the Joe Dante elements in a way that makes it less entertaining and fun to me than it should be, I think. I don't think it's hilarious, and I don't think that it needs to be, but I just like didn't find it personally scary at all. The plot beats seem all pretty obvious once it gets going, so like it was a relatively straightforward ride, but it was a ride that I enjoyed taking overall. I thought Jeff Daniels and Harley Jane Kozak were great in their roles. There's not really much to their characters, though. Again, I'm not sure like there needs to be for it to be a great creature feature, but again, it's like I feel like delving more into that denial in a way that, you know, reflected on their relationship or their life circumstances, because they moved to this small town to like get away from the big city of San Francisco, and I just feel like, especially that kind of element, they didn't really like pick up on all that much. But yeah, like I, I like a lot of the elements of this overall. Like I think most of the spider photography is pretty great. Frank Marshall often picks very good cinematographers and knows how to fill a frame and like re- is really good at putting a set piece in motion. Really, what I ended up remembering a lot from this movie were those set pieces, like the spider in the shower, the spider in the bleachers, the spider in the popcorn, you know, in like inside the shoes, inside the football helmet. And I thought those were really like inventive and clever plot devices that I think were all pulled off really well. What really rubs me the wrong way is just my spider sense, my spider knowledge that spiders are not hunters of people. They are not, this movie says, and this is a direct quote, they're like little vampires. No, spiders are not like fucking vampires, especially not toward human beings. And of course I understand that like the premise of this movie is that like this particular spider is a mutant one in some way, at least is so foreign and exotic that in this new locale it becomes this hunter of people. But then that spider has a psychic spider connection with every other more domestic spider, and they, like, touch legs, they, like, touch legs, and then all of the spiders become vampire human-hunting spiders. Oh, no, 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 they mate. That's them... Oh, that, that's, that's right. That's, that's spider true. fucking, and then all the little spiders are their offspring, like a new right. breed of spider. That's right. Thank you for the, the spider facts. Oh, I was paying attention. Yeah. Well beyond its success, even though it was a hit, but even beyond its actual self, the product itself, I think this movie promoted a general fear and cultural panic about spiders. Why would you say that about a movie named after the fear <laughs> of spiders? And I had the same sentiment about Jaws when I finally saw it as an adult. No wonder sharks are overhunting to the point of near extinction because this profoundly resonant product of pop culture taught everyone in the world that these creatures were going to kill you and wanted to kill you in particular. Ross, you're going to have to take a step towards it. Chris, I'm scared to death. And we all are. But our brains secrete a neurotransmitter and enables us to deal with them. I don't think I have that particular neurotransmitter. Yes, you do. Wow. 
I think this movie is very disturbing. I mean, I think the reasons are obvious based on our opening, sure. you know, various relationships with spiders, as totally. we outlined. This is the last of these movies that I watched because I had to watch it in the daytime. I would not watch it, like, any time close to going to bed. And I think, like, it was last night, I was drifting off, like, thinking about that fucking giant spider in the end in the basement. Not necessarily even, like, afraid of it, but it was just, like, in my head, like, I was just remembering its fucking face. Hello! <laughs> yeah. Just popping in from over your shoulder. So, I mean, I I mean, I think, like, yeah, if you're not afraid of spiders, this might be a difficult movie to find to be a real horror movie or even like a horror adjacent movie because that is what i saw a lot of like the critic reviews were like saying like oh this isn't scary at all like this is much too like cuddly and i'm just like what are you all smoking because like this is the scariest movie ever made (laughs) although obviously i get like the tone of it is in a way like tremors like kind of like cute and and fun i really love the small town setup and the vibe of the movie that just like i mean to me i feel like the true test of a great creature feature that you can get invested in is like would i watch a sitcom with these people in it that didn't have any creatures <laughs> And, like, in the case of, like, Tremors and Arachnophobia, like, I'm into the story of small-town doctor moves to a town, and then, like, the doctor who said he's going to retire won't, and now he has to, like, figure out how he's going to make a living and, like, convince everyone to be his patients. Well, yeah, and, like, convince the town not to reject him. I really, I really did enjoy that thread of it. I That thread of it. Um, I did think that that was absolutely the strongest, like, character part of it. Yeah, and I think Jeff Daniels goes a long way toward that. Like, it could be a very boring lead, and he just is, like, very, like, funny and just has, like, his offbeat Jeff Daniels-ness that really goes a long way. And Harley Jane Kozak, who I'm not as familiar with, I've probably seen her in a couple things. She also is great as the wife. Like, it kind of made me wonder why I haven't seen more of her. I I thought she was fantastic. Like, I felt like she had an emotional grounding in this movie that most of the other characters don't even try for. And, like, she feels very, like, Bridget Fonda or Holly Hunter-ish. And I looked her up on IMDb. Like, most of her IMDb credits are for TV roles. Like, I I really did feel like I wish she'd been in more things. Yeah, I feel like she was a big TV actress. I can't remember what show, but um, I think, like, people knew her from that if you were watching, like, adult dramas, which, you know, I wasn't at this time yeah i mean it's a campy tone like it's obviously willfully more of a comedy and that was even something that frank marshall was cognizant of and intended to do is like he didn't want to really like horrify people like he wanted to make Mm. people like laugh and be entertained yeah like again it's just it's very amplinish in that way Absolutely. Like, this movie, I think, gets credited to Steven Spielberg a lot. Like, he was an executive producer, but I don't think he had that much to do with the actual movie. Like, it's just this company that produced it, and he produces, like, a bazillion movies. But, like, I think it just has that spirit because it's a producer of so many of Spielberg's movies that, like, people mistakenly, like, believe. And they obviously, like, marketed it as, you know, produced by Steven Spielberg, because why wouldn't you? But, yeah, like, so many of the scenes in here just, like, play on, like, things that I worry about all the time, like a spider in my shoe, and like you said, like bugs coming out of the shower. And what I like about this movie is that it's something that you do encounter every day, whether or not you're afraid of it, but like you will find spiders in your house, you know, and they do like scurry into weird places and you never know 
I think that's what's scary about spiders is that you just like never know where they are. And, and also they're there whether you deny that or not. And and so that shot of like the eyes and it's just like that's how I like imagine all spiders is just like watching you like you know with like this ha 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 like you can't find me. So that's one of the things I loved the most about this and I I have already taken voluminous screen grabs from this whole movie. Oh, I can't even look at those. Uh, yeah, there are many cutaway reaction shots to the spider like spider vision of like just showing its eyes and i loved that i thought that was actually super effective at like just pulling you into that perspective and it didn't like undercut the silliness and it wasn't silly in and of itself like i and i don't necessarily think it made the movie scarier to me but i just really liked that and much like the creature effects and tremors i did think that that elevated it yeah, and it, it reminded me of like a movie like Halloween in a way where like you see Michael Myers creeping through the house and the character doesn't know where he is, but you do. I think that's what's, again, kind of scary about spiders is that they are like a real Michael Myers because they are in your house for real and you don't know where they are and they can just <laughs> pop out at any moment. And so... Yeah, I like... Every day is Halloween with a spider. Spiders are like a real Michael Myers. <laughs> Thank you for that. You're welcome. Thank you for that. 31 minutes into this movie, which is when they go into the barn and see a giant web, is exactly the point when I would just have moved. <laughs> like, the movie would be over <laughs> if it was Yeah, me. I get it. I really like uh, Jeff Daniels' like childhood trauma, uh, which I alluded to in our opening because it's supposed to be silly. It was like he's like a paralyzed baby, like looking at the spider, like crawling up his baby body. <laughs> baby body. It's my first memory. I can envision the crib all around me, clear as day. I can still feel a feeling of waking up, just drowsy, peaceful, secure, and then there it was. Probably just a daddy long legs. Yeah, well, it seemed huge. And it just came relentlessly, just crawling through the bars of the crib. And then as it touched my bare leg... I know, you were just wearing a diaper. All of my limbs involuntarily froze, just froze. Probably still half asleep is all. I was paralyzed, Molly. I still get paralyzed, okay? Just please try to understand how this makes me feel. I was just physically unable to stop it from crawling along my naked skin. Just, I can still feel its hairy little legs. Just then up to my face. <laughs> you know, it's just a feeling of utter helplessness, being explored by an alien thing, that's all. for being a spider-phobe? Arachnophobe. Whatever. I think this movie is very cleverly written. It's obviously not the most, like, deep movie or, you know, like, the characters, especially, like, the supporting characters are all very broad in one note, like, and, and feel like kind of generic stock victims of a, of a creature, but in a way that I kind of enjoy. I have a hard time faulting this movie for making arachnophobia the central animating force of its lead character. I just wish that there'd been more to Jeff Daniels' psyche and personality than that. And, and again, it's like, just to be fair to it, like, I did, like, I, I thought the small town element did a good job for how long of the movie it occupies in kind of giving him something to bounce off of. But most of this movie, he's acting opposite spiders. And just for me, that terror felt pretty one note in a way that could have been made deeper and more interesting. 
once it gets to the like the big boss battles portion of it, and especially once John Goodman shows up, it becomes much more of a Joe Dante production. <laughs> you know, it becomes much more typical creature feature. I think in a way that I that I found more fun, and I actually found Jeff Daniels' character to be a bit less one note because it past a certain point, it feels like the dynamic between him and John Goodman is one where like Jeff Daniels' character starts like feeling his oats and starts wanting to be like competitive against this exterminator guy as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the John Goodman character is very, very broad. Like <laughs> he's a cartoon. Yeah, <laughs> I love John Goodman so much, and I feel like this movie totally comes alive in a different dimension once he shows up. Yeah, it, it's funny, like, I don't dislike him, but it's kind of, like, my least favorite part, because it is more jokey, and I'm more into the building of, like, the suspense, because this is something that, like, frightens me more. Like, I definitely think it could be, like, a deeper psychological examination of why so many people are afraid of spiders, and how irrational that is. Really, like, all of these movies perpetuate myths about creatures that are not true so it's like i can't say much about this one although i think like again this is just something that more people encounter and more people have like because it's even more irrational to be afraid of anacondas if you're not going anywhere near the jungle i agree with you but i also feel like that kind of underlying current about denial and about this like family being in denial could have been picked up later in the movie in a way that would have deepened all the characters Once he gets the town behind him, once he really starts becoming the doctor of the town and all of that, it's like rally around the flag. Like, everyone just kind of instantly loves him. And then, obviously, he's reached a point past which he can't be in denial about the gigantic spiders in his own barn, you know, like, in his own home. And I feel like the movie loses more from putting that story down, more so than what it's losing by the addition of John Goodman and his silliness. Because, yeah, I mean, I totally agree, John Goodman feels like he's a character out of, like, Raising Arizona. (laughs) Like, it feels like even the sillier side of the Coen brothers, like, the tone that he's going for. Uh, There's a rumor going around that some kind of spider might have killed Sam Metcalf, maybe Margaret, maybe even my Bronco. Doubtful, Henry. There was a case in Florida where one of my colleagues bumped into a nest of black widows, sustained over a dozen bites, and lived. Of course, he permanently lost control of all of his bodily functions. There's no spider here. But I will hunt down the alleged arachnid and spread some to kingdom come. I didn't hate this movie at all. Like, part of me kind of wanted to hate it or, like, wanted to, like, expect that it would be bad. But I I think it's very competently made. I think it has some great inventive kills and great, like, inventive creature feature action. It's just, like, not one of my favorites among these movies. I think the special effects, a lot of which are real spiders, so maybe can't even be called special effects, are pretty great. Very convincing for this genre. There are, you know, moments when you kind of suspect that the giant spider is a puppet of some kind, but a lot of times it isn't a puppet. In the basement scene, like, Jeff Daniels was really, like, trapped under that thing with that spider crawling around for at least a week or two. 
no amount of money that you paid me would get me to act opposite a tarantula. I guess these these movies, in certain ways, like come down to like personal taste, you know, and personal fear, and that's pretty interesting. D- the different reactions that we have to like tremors and arachnophobia based more on personal taste than being objective, because I think objectively we see the same things pretty much in them. Yeah, definitely. I was entertained by the last moment of this movie. Where they're like, fuck this town, we're moving back to San Francisco. And the moment that they've moved back to San Francisco, aren't even done unpacking their boxes, they experience a big earthquake. And, I mean, first of all, this is the kind of movie about white upper middle class mobility that you just don't get anymore nowadays. Um, But also, I just love that they've been so, like, torched by these arachnid encounters that an earthquake doesn't phase them at all. Yeah. I mean, I would much rather face an earthquake <laughs> right. than a spider, right. like a single spider. There's also like from Aliens, like the Queen, you know, which I guess was probably based on bugs originally, like in Aliens. But in this one, it very much takes like the Aliens plot of like the Queen is the biggest one guarding her nest. I'm mean, like, I would much rather face like the Alien Queen than that spider, personally. Yeah, and it was weird when Jeff Daniels yelled, get away from her, you bitch. Yeah, that was weird. I wish. I mean, <laughs> this movie could have totally supported that. The only other thing I made note of is, did you hear the song in the closing credits of Arachnophobia? (laughs) The lyrics of which are like, don't bug me, just try and act humane. Don't squish me or gthwish me. I can spin a web, I can spin a tail. Not only did I hear that song. (laughs) You've memorized it. Because it, I mean, it sounds like whatever, like a normal song you would hear at the end of a movie. And then all of a sudden, like, you start hearing these, like, spider puns and references in it. So I did notice that. And, like, at first it feels like, oh, I'm clearly reading into this because it's a spider movie. And then it gets more and more overt where it's basically like, I'm arachnophobia. And I was like, I know this voice, but it cannot possibly be what I'm thinking. It is. It is Jimmy Buffett. That is wow. a Jimmy Buffett sitting on his tuffet. <laughs> Eating his curds. No way! Yeah. <laughs> I am dying for any explanation why they felt the need to commission Jimmy Buffett to write a song about spiders for the end credits of this movie. This may not have ever been mentioned on the podcast before, but I grew up in a Jimmy Buffett household. Chris, I thought the pet rats threw me, but to learn that you're descended from parrot heads... I was a small baby parrot head, baby parrot. Little macaw? Yeah. Oh my god. So I know, like, every Jimmy Buffett song, never heard this one. Sing your best one. Sing your... (laughs) I'm just kidding, you don't have to do that. Well, clearly it's Don't Bug Me. That's that's the best. That is so beautiful. Part of me is sad that Becky is not here to learn this, but I also don't know if she would appreciate that. I don't think she would, but, you know, we'll we'll just have to do a Jimmy Buffett episode. (laughs) So Arachnophobia did not have any sequels, which feels like a real missed opportunity since, you know, so many of these movies have franchises. Like, this really feels like something that could have part two, a part ten, like, whatever. It's a concept that's got legs. (laughs) Eight of them. At least eight, (laughs) you know. A good eight-legged franchise would be perfect. There was, however, a video game released in 1991, as well as a novelization and a comic book. I remember the Nintendo game. I remember it. I definitely didn't play that. Yeah, I don't think I ever played it. And even then, I remember like looking at Nintendo Power Magazine at the ads for it, and I'm like, it's a spider game in a house. Come on. 
There was also a remake announced a couple months ago, so we have that to look forward to. I don't think I could. I don't think I could watch it. I can barely watch this movie again. Yeah, I don't think we should re-traumatize you by forcing you to watch that. I'm an arachnophobia phobe. <laughs> <laughs> and that will move us to Congo, released June 9th, nineteen ninety-five. Also directed by Frank Marshall, starring Laura Linney, Dylan Walsh, Ernie Hudson, Grant Heslov, Delroy Lindo. Joe Pantoliano, and Tim Curry. <laughs> I feel like Tim Curry's name should be said more times. In bold, underlined, <laughs> yes, and right. lots of exclamation points. The tagline, where you are the endangered species. That's a good tagline. That's a pretty good one. Yeah. yeah. In Congo, communications expert Karen Ross teams up with primatologist Peter Elliott and Romanian philanthropist Herkimer Homolka. <laughs> For a trip into the Congo to search for her missing fiancé, and rare blue diamonds that can power her company's new laser, and the ancient lost city of Zinj, and the jungle home of captive mountain gorilla Amy, who communicates with sign language. Chief amongst the perils they encounter are hungry, hungry hippos, African bureaucracy, (laughs) and a tribe of killer gorillas bred by ancient peoples to protect the diamond mine of Zinj. count is approximately 55 gorillas. You did a gorilla head count? I googled. There are multiple websites devoted to how many people and gorillas or other creatures die in these various movies. Right, right. I copied the homework, basically. Congo was based on the 1980 novel by Michael Crichton. It was originally intended to be a movie. 20th Century Fox bought the novel before it was even written. But then Crichton had writer's block and had to treat it in an isolation tank. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And then Congo was born, I guess. (laughs) Crichton wrote the Ernie Hudson role for Sean Connery. I think Ernie Hudson's better for that role. Gotta say. In 1984, Crichton created a video game based on Congo, but then realized he had already sold the rights and had to change (laughs) Africa to South America, the diamonds to emeralds, and Amy the talking gorilla to Paco the talking parrot. What? Renaming the game Amazon. (laughs) What? You know when you, you forget that you sold the rights to your novel to someone else? I've never heard of this. Also, did not know Michael Crichton created video games himself. Oh, he did. He would actually, like, he learned computer programming. I mean, he had 
partners on it, obviously, right. but he was actively doing it rather than just like creating the story. Oh, Paco. Uh, Crichton was not involved with the project by the time <laughs> it was resurrected in the wake of Jurassic Park's massive success. Hired to rewrite the script was Oscar winner John Patrick Shanley, best known for <laughs> Moonstruck. <laughs> Basically the same movie as Congo, really. He was also later a Tony and Pulitzer Prize winner for <laughs> right. Doubt. <laughs> right. That's what I wanted to get to. Is This is the Doubt guy. <laughs> I'm sure he had a lot of doubt when he was writing this movie, too. Not Mrs. Doubtfire. Doubt. When originally given the book, he said, I like the title. <laughs> Which he thought was passing, and Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall thought was an agreement to write the film. So he kind of felt bad turning it down and just... <laughs> kind of did his best he did insist that the arnie hudson character aka the sean connery character be made black because he couldn't imagine having this movie where the white man was bossing around a bunch of black men yeah that's only one level of symbolism that i would have found problematic san winston oscar winner for aliens terminator 2 and jurassic park did the special effects the movie grossed 152 million dollars on a 15 million dollar budget it debuted at number one at the box office besting holdovers casper braveheart and die hard with a vengeance it was the 13th highest grossing film in the u.s in 1995 entertainment weekly's lisa schwartzbaum said all I know is that something has gone terribly drum-beatingly wrong in Congo, and you can sense jungle trouble brewing from the get-go. This production looks more like a crude 1950s sci-fi movie than one of the author's usual opulently conceived tech-heavy thrillers. It's a Mystery Science Theater 3000 special event. Who knew the heart of darkness contained such cheese? Not a fan, Lisa. <laughs> On the other hand was uh, Roger Ebert, who said, The result is not a movie that is very good, exactly, but it's entertaining and funny. False sophisticates will scorn it. Real sophisticates will relish it. Three stars. It was the thing that I remembered about him, is that he would often really get a kick out of movies like this. Yeah, he was very much maligned for enjoying certain movies at the time, I think, and written off. And I'm just going to say, I think his taste is mostly borne out. Like, he really did identify things that would age if not exactly well, that would age and still be memorable. And still be entertaining. Yeah, he had, like, a real love for cliches. Like, he wrote a whole book about, like, different movie cliches. He loved pointing out, like, oh, this is, you know, the part of the movie where the cat gets saved or, what you know. Right. Like, now with the internet, like, everything is noticed and, and like, comments upon, but I think he noticed tropes before a lot of other people did or and, and embraced them before a lot of critics did. So did you see Congo when you were a wee baby gorilla? Was this rated R? No, it was PG-13. Okay. I am just about certain I saw Congo in theaters. I know if I didn't see it in theaters, I saw it immediately when it was on video. But I am pretty certain that I saw it in the theater. I fucking loved this movie. I went apeshit for this movie. From the very start. From the very start. It was the beginning of a lifelong love affair with Laura Linney. Also with Tim Curry. (laughs) (laughs) Quite a threesome there. By the time this movie came out, you know, 1995, I was already on AOL. You know, I was was surfing the World Wide Web. 
So the like tech aspect of this really appealed to me. Mm. The omnipresence of video calls over the internet blew my mind in this movie, set up a whole lot of expectations that video calls were a source of like adventure and intrigue. Now it's just how everyone does their work all the time, which is a lot less joyful and exciting. But like this and Dick Tracy just gave me ideas about video conferencing that reality never caught up to. Yeah, I, I really love loved Tim Curry in this movie. I loved the locales of it. I loved the character of Amy, like the gorilla. The fact that she could talk was so fascinating to me as someone who loved creatures and reading about animals and animal, the social aspects of animal life. Yeah, I absolutely flipped for this movie. Loved it growing up. I hadn't seen it in decades. Like, I had not seen this movie basically since it first came out. And I can't believe that I hadn't. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, did you see this movie when it came out? Fuck yes, I saw Congo. (laughs) I also saw Congo in the theaters. There was no force on this earth that was going to stop me from seeing (laughs) an adaptation of a Michael Crichton book that was in the same kind of genre as Jurassic Park. I don't, like, I didn't see Disclosure or Rising Sun because those were a little bit more adult. But the ones that were, like, this was really billed as, like, a spiritual sequel to Jurassic Park. Right. They obviously capitalized on that. Um, in the marketing and made it look as much as like that as they could. Was this right after Lion King? A year after, yeah. This was 95 and that was 94. Because I also really seem to remember them like really capitalizing on the Africa-ness of it and really using that as a selling point because i remember i of course saw lion king in theaters and i do think that part of it was like ooh, this like africa story yeah i think that's true i think i remember that as well so i actually read the book congo before seeing this movie i think like when i was on my Crichton kick i read several of his books like andromeda strain sphere and congo like all around the same time and i remember staying at my grandma's house i think my parents were up in alaska on vacation So I was staying with my grandma. In broad daylight, I was, like, checking around the corner for mutant gorillas. Because it was a scary (laughs) book, at least you know, when I was 11 or 12. I'm not sure how it holds up now, but it was creepy. So I definitely saw this movie. I mean, it was really, like, hit the sweet spot. I mean, it was the perfect movie for a 12-year-old boy. I mean, it was it just, it feels like it was made for me at that exact age. You know, it's adventure but it feels kind of sophisticated when you're a kid. Maybe didn't play that way to the adults so much. <laughs> I also had the toys uh, from Congo. Whoa! The action figures including the scary gorillas and amy plus karen peter monroe none of whom resemble the actors in the movie at all i think i had forgotten that those toys were actually from congo and i thought that they were just like sort of like extras from jurassic park because they did release like extra jurassic park characters who weren't even in the movie that they made up like just to sell more toys so i think i had forgotten that they were actually congo characters so yes i Probably owned, like, just about the entire lineup of Congo toys. So, this movie was definitely a major feature in my childhood. This is your captain speaking. Hey. You've been cleared for takeoff. Please make sure that your seatbelts are fastened and that all carry-on luggage is safely secured. We are returning her to the jungle from whence she came. From the look of it, not a moment too soon. You're the reason she's upset. Me? What did I do? Ugly woman. Yes, very, very ugly woman. Now let's get your seatbelt on. Forgive me, I'll explain later. See? I'm buckling my seatbelt. 
See, Amy? We're all buckling our seatbelts. You can do it. Go on. Yeah, that's it. Good girl. Here's an egg. <coughs> Amy, we do not throw things. Uh, is that animal dangerous? Humans are dangerous. Gorillas are very gentle. So you think the gorilla may be dangerous? Maybe so. Don't perpetuate a myth. What myth? The King Kong myth, the myth of the killer ape. Well, are you so certain there aren't some kind of gorillas that kill? Oh, please, doctor, you can't be serious. It's your area of expertise. Folk singing? Communications technology. So you're a geek with a cellular phone? I'm a scientist. But you and your protege, as far as I can see, belong in the circus. And now, is Congo everything that it used to be to you? For the most part, yes. <laughs> I mean, I always, from the very beginning, even if I didn't have the, you know, the film vocabulary to describe it this way, I knew that this was a B movie. And especially around this time in my life, like when I was just like mainlining movies constantly, whether going to the theater or watching stuff on cable or renting stuff at Blockbuster, like, I had enough of a developed film taste by this point to know that, like, I liked big, dumb, loud movies. I knew that I loved any kind of Michael Crichton-ish thing. Even now, I think this is definitely a trashier movie, (laughs) more of a B-movie. I would say it's more oriented toward the gore and horror of it, in the sense that, like, the, the kills are more elaborate, and it shows, like, you know, blood and guts and that kind of thing. But after Jurassic Park, I was, like, I was probably to to like that and appreciate that, especially in movies like this. And yeah, I mean, watching it now, I just think it's a really enjoyable B-movie. Like, I don't think it makes any bones about the fact that it's a B-movie. I don't think it aspires or has pretensions to be anything other than that. And there are things about it that are, you know, weaker or goofier. But yeah, I I had a hell of a fun time re-watching this movie. And, and yeah, like, I feel like it's gonna kind of go in my rotation right alongside Tremors just to be like when I need to watch like a dumb movie I am gonna reach for Amy and her green drop drink well I'm a real sophisticate according to Ebert (laughs) Uh, I'm with Ebert Uh, this is a movie for people who are sophisticated enough to say that this is not sophisticated and they love it (laughs) right and don't feel the urge to be snobby about it and this movie was savaged by critics not surprising at all (laughs) And not remembered well, I don't think, by audiences at the time. Like, it was, I think, because it was sold as the next Jurassic Park, it disappointed just about everybody, including me, like, as a kid. Like, I watched this and then, like, didn't really revisit it. I just recognized that it was not, like, what I was looking for, which was something, like, kind of as thrilling and smart, probably, as Jurassic Park or even, like, the Crichton novel it's based on. Like, Crichton has like a lot of science and whether or not it holds up if i were to read it now like as a you know 12 year old reading it like it all felt very plausible and was very like felt very smart because it was about communications and (laughs) the state of africa at the time which you know i would have known nothing about but i think people kind of misread this movie and didn't understand that it was a b-movie which i don't really blame them for because i don't think it was sold as a b-movie and it has the budget and kind of the veneer of an A movie. And especially, I think, because Jurassic Park is not a B movie. No. Like, it's so not a B movie. I think it's like 
world recordly not a B movie. <laughs> you know, even given the fact of the the creatures and the the creature feature aspects of it. You know, and I do, I definitely see what you're saying as far as like how it was pitched as the next Jurassic Park. And in that context, I totally understand why people were like, fucking this? Are you kidding yeah. me? I really didn't remember this movie, right? Because I thought it was a worse movie in an incompetent way, like a movie that didn't know what it was. And when I was watching it again, it really did feel like it did know what it was. Like so much of it, like I remembered like Amy, the gorilla being like cheesy because she was unconvincingly like rendered as a like special effect basically and instead it's like oh amy is smoking and drinking martinis drinking just slamming martinis like (laughs) that's not something that they did in jurassic park there was not a a raptor like (laughs) swilling manhattans it's okay amy where ground where ground it's fine we're flying we're going to the jungle amy want green drop drink no. Amy wants green drop drink. All right, all right. You'd swear they were married. The notion of the killer ape may be politically incorrect, but that's not to say it's untrue. I can't believe what I'm hearing. <laughs> Clichés usually contain some element of truth. Are you serving that ape a martini? She's allowed one, it'll calm her down. In my life, I have heard many a bizarre story. Many a bizarre story containing bizarre truth. Frank Marshall knew that that was funny. Like, there's a lot of comic relief in this movie. So much of it is funny, and not just Amy, but Tim Curry is obviously going very broad with his performance, and that is really leaning into comedy. And I remembered him being more of, like, a like a real villain that just happened to be, like, what I kind of remembered as a bad performance. And instead, I'm like, oh, he's not even really a villain. He's just kind of, like, a, a selfish dude who's twirling his imaginary mustache in the background. Like, there are weird moments like Delroy Lindo demanding that someone stop eating his sesame cake. So good. It's so good. It's Tim Curry. Yes. He invites them to eat the sesame cake and then once he does, demands they stop. And again, you don't put that in the movie unless you're going for comedy. It just doesn't make any sense. There's a lot of intentional comedy in this movie that I just did not remember. I did not remember it trying to be funny at all. And maybe no one understood that at the time or it doesn't sound like critics really got it for the most part besides Ebert. Well, and also it's like a lot of the stuff that I think is intentionally funny in this movie and that lands as genuinely funny now is aimed at adults. It's not aimed at kids. But I think that overall this movie was kind of marketed to kids or at least marketed to the exact same audience as Jurassic Park. Which is just a lot wider, a lot less the type of movie-going audience that intentionally seeks out a B-movie. Yeah, I mean, I, I had toys. Like, they, those were made for a child. You know, it, it's... It, it definitely, like, some something got lost in communication between, like, the studio and the filmmakers. And what it reminds me of is, like, the way that you can enjoy a movie from the 60s or 70s, like, especially, like, those disaster e- epics. Like, whether or not they were, like, riveting back then, I think some of them were. But now you watch them and there there's a certain campiness to it just because it's, like, so of 
the era that it's in and and it's taking itself so seriously and this movie really isn't but it kind of it pretends like it's taking itself seriously which is probably what fooled people but anyway you enjoy it like with the same like now that we're 25 years and counting away from this movie i think we can enjoy it as how much it like represents like the mid 90s even though it was very much a throwback to older movies even at the time but there's something just so charming about it and that like you you don't have the expectation that oh i'm gonna like watch this movie oh it's not really fulfilling what i'm looking for from the story and the characters like that's not why you go to this kind of movie especially so many years later like you can only go back hoping to be kind of charmed by older special effects and older actors and a certain spirit that you don't find in movies anymore so yeah oddly enough again like i found this movie very charming in the in a way that i found both of the other movies to be which is not something i expected to say about a creature feature movie but there is something very like nice and warm and likable and almost kind of cuddly about this movie yeah like really surprisingly because again I, I had not seen it since i was a kid and it was just re-watching it now i like couldn't believe how much of this movie I didn't get for how much I liked it when it first came out. Like, it's it reads entirely differently to me now. I think ultimately this is a creature feature whose creature is corporate greed. <laughs> first they found the diamonds. Solomon's men. A diamond mine of incredible bounty. Then they built the city around the mine so that it should be protected. The savagery of the guards was a legend. They instantly fell upon any thief, any transgressor. And the diamonds flowed to the kingdom of Solomon. Well, what happened? Why did the city die? I don't know. Maybe the mines ran dry. No! No! The diamonds are here! Because, like, Almost every person in this movie, other than, like, Amy and Amy's handler, is only going to Africa to steal diamonds. <laughs> to steal diamonds that were clearly valued by the cultures and civilizations that were protecting them for thousands of years. And this is a thing that is a through line in a lot of creature features, but also, like, in tons of Hollywood movies. The historical backstory of colonization, colonialism, stealing of resources, especially, like, minerals and diamonds and stuff like that. Yeah, trying to tame or control nature. Yes, and trying to dominate it, bring it under not just human power, but under white male human power that's such a through line in so many of these movies whether it's aware of that and articulates it or not more often not but like this felt like it really understood that you know it's (laughs) casting sticks around to like identify who's responsible for that element but i feel like if anything that's like the john patrick shanley of it all (laughs) it's like understanding that no really most of the people who are going to this place are going for awful wrong reasons i just find that to be such a really fascinating element. I do think it's not necessarily an element that lends itself to a B-movie level of storytelling and filmmaking, but re-watching this movie, I feel like that enhances and raises it way above what it really could have been. And I just thought it was a really clever way to set off all of the different relationships of the lead characters in this movie. Like, even down to Laura Linney, 
Like the fact that ultimately she's working for this telecommunications firm and she thinks she's going for was was the guy like her husband or her fiance her fiance and the son of her boss right and like yeah the the son of the boss and she's going there and she says you know i'm i'm going to find something i lost but she's literally there to steal diamonds from africa (laughs) you know but but she becomes aware of that. And her moment of biggest agency in the story is using that diamond to destroy the exact satellite and all the technology that she's there to steal the diamonds to operate. Karen, is that you? It's me, Travis. I thought I lost you. I sent another expedition. Did you get it? I have bad news, Charles. He's, he was killed. Did you get the diamond? Did you? Yes. Good girl. Do you remember what I told you? If I ever knew you sent me here for some diamond and not for Charlie, that I would make you sorry. Karen, of course I'm upset. But what's done is done. I could... I know. You need a new cash machine. What would happen to the satellite if I put its phone number in this laser and pull the trigger? The chip from the transmitter's got the satellite's number, doesn't it? That laser takes a 12,000 channel chip. If you put all that power through that diamond, turn! This is for you, Charlie. And I just thought that was really smart. Like, I think it was in some ways kind of smarter than the whole movie is. <laughs> I don't know if it necessarily pays off or is executed in the best way that it could have been. But I just thought that that was like something for a movie like this to have in its mind that was so much more intelligent than just like killer apes hurt people. <laughs> yeah, I honestly like didn't really even <laughs> look that deeply into this movie <laughs> uh, when rewatching it. But when you mention it, I mean, it definitely, it's it's there, whether it's um, explored really or not. I mean, you can't help but see it, you know, in the, in the package that this movie is of mostly white people going into deepest Africa. And, and I feel like Tim Curry is the red herring, you know, because he is so blatantly and overtly only there to steal the diamonds. And like, even like Delroy Lindo's character and other characters are like, you're just here, you're just here to steal diamonds, aren't you? So like with him, it's barely concealed avarice and greed and, you know, that colonial mentality. But like, Laura Linney's character like has to go on this journey and like go through all the dangers of it to actually discover that that was the actual reason she's been sent there. Yeah, in a way, I don't think John Patrick Shanley told Frank Marshall about any of that. I don't think so either. (laughs) Because the movie he made, like even just visually, like with those like big honking diamonds, like it really like (laughs) ruined like the the sense that this is like 
a real like kind of exploit that these people are going on because this diamond is like the size of my head and does not look real like they all just look like toys that you would like get out in one of those like grabber things that you play with as a kid where you get like a stuffed animal out of the thing i'm amazed there wasn't an action figure of the diamond (laughs) like no i totally agree and i do think that like the movie that was made was like this like action figure movie about the good ape killer apes and then there's the diamonds There was a difference in the approach of the writing and the storytelling and the thematic stuff of what it's really about compared to what the movie actually is. Because the opening of the movie, like, for a good half hour, is, like, bureaucracy of Africa. Like, what... I I think it's even, like, a fictional country or an unnamed country. Like, it's not even specific politics, but it's, like, there's an assassination going on, and they have to pay off this guy, and then they have to pay off that guy, and then the military is shooting at them, and it's, like, all this, like, intricate stuff that, like ultimately does not matter like to the story of apes and and really like steals time away from the actual creature feature but it's still entertaining because it's like it's pretty funny and and well acted and you get to see a lot of like actors pop up like delroy lindo (laughs) doing an accent and again shouting about sesame cake uh, which is not something you get to see him do uh in other movies mr homoka Oh. Stop eating my sesame cake. Stop eating my sesame cake! Mm-hmm. What are you doing in my country? You bag of shit. Captain, please. I only wish to explore and discover. This fellow is a big bag of shit. You should shake this rat from off your neck. He owes money to everybody everywhere he goes. I will ask you to wait outside, Mr. Molka. I'm not I'm not <laughs> complaining about any of this, but it is odd. Like oddly intricate, oddly kind of realistic even though it's heightened in this kind of campy way like the underlying thing of like what a mess like africa is and like factions of people you know buying each other off or fighting or trying to kill each other like he's making a movie about the congo so it makes sense to include that in here but it also was like not necessary for the kind of movie this is (laughs) and i think it must have just been shanley i mean I i think there's probably some of it in the book as well but like that is easily something that you could be like, all right, we're going to get rid of that and just get into the jungle. But that's not what happens here. So the the worst aspect of this movie is probably its creature feature-ness of the killer gorillas, which are kind of briefly introduced at the very opening where there's a, an attack on uh, Laura Linney's fiancé. And then a very long time goes by before we revisit them or get anywhere near them. And they really don't play a big role until the very, very climax. So, like, this is not, like, a build where, like, you see, like, like slow reveal to the creature or, like, kind of coming up with tactics. Like, they attack and then they kind of quickly, like, establish a perimeter of lasers around the camp. And that's kind of it. And then there's, like, a big battle at the end. And she easily, like, neutralizes them with her laser gun. Oh, 
Ugly gorilla. Ugly. Go away. I don't know what to make of it. Rain. What the hell are you doing anyway? What am I doing? I'll tell you what I'm doing. We're getting out of here. We are. What about them? Put them on the endangered species list. I have questions about this movie. I want to know how many coups did Laura Linney do? <laughs> Because Laura Linney knows how to derail and, like, fuck up heat-seeking missiles from a helicopter. And she used to work for the CIA. Yeah, they kind of, a detail just dropped in. I mean, it's necessary to explain why she can, like, action movie her way out of this. But it's, <laughs> like, she's a communications employee. Doesn't seem particularly high up because she's taking, like, direct orders. Like, she kind of feels like she's his assistant. <laughs> she's his assistant who just happened to, like, do coups. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In the she, past. She did coups recreationally and professionally. And also, the deployment of laser fences, that's not a telecommunications-type uh, application so much. No. I, well, I mean, <laughs> they're building a laser gun. That is also not something... Right, a perimeter laser gun. I, I don't believe NBC has one of those. Uh, I mean, at this point, I bet they do. Disney does, General sure. Electric, and yeah, they have defense contractors under them. But not back then. Yeah, I, I feel like her resume, like, it was just like special skills. Cool. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Previous work experience, question mark. Um, yeah, her character is ridiculous. Um, <laughs> it's a real credit to Laura Linney that she makes any of it work. Because, like, if you'd cast, like, Dina Meyer or something, like, from Starship Trooper, <laughs> Denise Richards, yes. like, this does not come <laughs> off as well. It's a marvel that that character actually feels grounded. Like, Laura Linney, enough can't be said about her in general, but specifically in this movie, she's, like, she's carrying the whole weight of it right on her shoulders. Really love the Old Navy wardrobe on Laura Linney and everyone. She is wearing multiple shades of khaki together. It's a very Old Navy Eddie Bauer styled movie. <laughs> Banana Republic as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I also loved that their communications with Africa, like a video call to Africa, <laughs> goes better than any Zoom call you have with someone who's 50 feet away. Again, the fidelity of these blue diamond lasers, I mean, it really can't be denied. I'm glad at least that they don't try to make Amy's handler, played by Dylan Walsh, like into the main character of this movie, because he gets a leech on his dick, and that's the most interesting thing that he does or that happens to him in this whole film. I mean, you're, you're speaking of Dylan Walsh, who was on my favorite show, Nip Tuck. Oh, that's where I was trying to remember his face from. Holy shit. But he was a little bit vanilla on that show, too. I enjoyed that they made the woman the action hero and the guy the primatologist. It's easy to see how they would make the woman the sensitive primatologist. And the guy is the one who's, like, driving the mission and is much... Like, she's kind of the corporate greed character before she has a change of heart. She's 
very kind of relentless and they have a lot of banter like where she's sparing no expense and he just cares about his gorilla getting back home and so yeah he, he he's definitely like the more traditionally female character that you would see yeah. in most of these movies this movie definitely has better acting than this movie <laughs> deserves what did you think of amy as a convincing like special effect or not. I always loved Amy. Very few things about this movie genuinely emotionally move me, but at the end, when Amy went with her gorilla family into the jungle mists and disappeared forever, like, I believe that I cried as a kid seeing it for the first time. <laughs> and now it's just like, it's so moving to me. It's so moving. Like, I'm a sucker for you know, like, far from home and getting back to home type of stories like that. I think, like, the the cultural consensus about this movie, if, the, if people know anything, is that it has a fake gorilla. <laughs> like, a person in a gorilla suit, mostly, if not always. I don't think there's ever, like, a real gorilla playing her. Maybe there's sometimes, like, a puppet? I don't know. I was really braced for bad person in a gorilla suit. I'm gonna say, I think this goes down with the Hall of Fame of eight performances in movies, King Kong, 2001, Planet of the Apes. I love Amy. I, like, genuinely love her. Not even ironically. No, unironically. Unironically. I love her. And I feel, like, ridiculous saying that. (laughs) Like, I'm opening myself up to ridicule. But it's true. Like, she is, like, a very fun character. She's such a fun character. She has so much fucking personality. Even among the actors in this movie who are doing the broadest, biggest performances. At least the bond that she has with Dylan Walsh's character feels very believable. Even if, like, he feels very vanilla. Like, she just always feels alive and curious about everything and engaged in what's going on, even if she doesn't understand what all these humans are doing and what their motivations are. I love Amy. Amy's the MVP. The most valuable primate. (laughs) Yeah, I love that this was a BYOG adventure. Like, (laughs) they're going to meet the bad gorillas, but they're bringing their own good gorilla. Like, much more so than most of the rest of these movies. Like, this movie makes it clear that these gorillas are not real gorillas. Like, it doesn't demonize, like, real gorillas. It's clear that the actual gorillas are mostly gentle creatures, like, noble creatures. And these are, like, somehow bred. I I don't think they really get into, like, how that happened. But they're bred and, like, trained to be evil gorillas that are guarding the the diamond mines different gorillas than actual gorillas yeah i love the fact that they like hide drugs in her bananas to get her to fall asleep and i'm like i i want some of those bananas i want a bunch of them <laughs> <laughs> this movie made me feel like arnie hudson really needed his own action franchise because he's so good in this and he... like effortlessly like <sighs> smooth like charming very charismatic like, not a huge part of this movie, necessarily, but, like, anytime he's on screen, you feel like you're in good hands. Karen Ross. That's me. Monroe Kelly. I'm your great white hunter for this trip, though I happen to be black. How bad is this news for us? Well, whenever the leadership of one of these little central African countries comes into question, they tend to just murder everybody. Oh, my God. Not really. They live for the opportunity to settle scores, and they've got a lot of scores to settle. It's like what's going on in the Congo. Things are pretty bad in the Congo right now. We heard. Is the Kagani are pissed off. Can't blame them. 20th century sucks. Maybe the 21st will be better. You're some kind of criminal, aren't you? Aren't we all? No, I'm not a criminal, I'm a scientist. Scientist? I run a few guns. 
things. You sons of bitches ruined the world. I don't think it's a good idea to have further involvement with these people. It's been the hallmark of every Ernie Hudson thing we've covered and every role I know of his, that he is given way too little to work with, but that he makes more than the most of it. And I feel like in a movie that has one of the broadest Tim Curry performances I've ever seen, which is saying something, the fact that Ernie Hudson not only holds his own, but like perfectly parries every single Tim Curry thrust and like is clearly having more fun on screen than almost anyone else there is such a testament to Ernie Hudson as a performer. I love him in this movie. Love him. Like, I feel like he's single-handedly elevated it all too. Yeah, like, Tim Curry could have been playing Pennywise in this movie, and it would have been, like, more subtle and more believable in a way. Like, this movie just felt like the Jungle Cruise ride at Disneyland. Oh, yeah, it felt a little bit like the Treasure of the Sierra Madre, like those old type of, like, really swashbuckly adventure movies. Oh, yeah, African Queen. Yes, Um, yes. It almost could have used a a musical number with, like, a (laughs) I Want to Walk Like You from the Jungle Book. Nothing would have been, like, out of bounds for this movie. This movie has everything. It has a coup, (laughs) a volcano, plane crashes, leeches, a ghost tribe, hippos, getting lost, customs issues. Angry regular gorillas and killer gorillas. And laser cannons. You forgot laser cannons. Well, I can't name it all. (laughs) In a way, that's a flaw of the movie because there's so many conflicts and they're all kind of unrelated that it's just like this barrage of crazy things happening in Africa, which really just sells the message, don't go to Africa, or at least (laughs) don't go to this fictional country. (laughs) And it probably could have used like a through line of like more about the the evil gorillas, you know, if they're going to sell the movie on that. But it's never boring. It is constantly, like, moving. There is a lot happening. Like, there's honestly so much happening, I can, like, barely even contain it in my head now to, like, talk about it. Because I'm like, oh, there are huge events that happen. And then, like, there's a volcano that we haven't even mentioned, but it erupts. And it's a whole climactic thing. But then it's not really... (laughs) Here's the story. They domesticated gorillas. You call that domesticated? They're killing a man. So they taught them to be this way. They bred them to violence. They looked for the trait and they encouraged it. Guard dogs. And they turned on their masters. What's that smell? These are all the bones of gorillas. You mean these are the... No, these are the bones of normal gorillas. This one's skull was crushed. Feel that? Feel what? Well, and then it turns out that the minds that they're talking about are, like, also the minds of King Solomon, who was, like, the king of Israel. So this was also, like, OG colonialism and exploitation from thousands of years ago repeating across the centuries like this movie has so much and i feel like there could have been a way to you know have a through line that ties it all together but it does end up feeling like just supremely messy because there isn't really that yeah they definitely told this cast like this is going to be the next jurassic park and everyone was like sign me up and then they got there and were like oh I don't think so. I also just wanted to shout out, like, my last note was just the the pedigree of creative talent on this movie. Because, again, John Patrick Shanley <laughs> wrote the script for this. Alan Davio, who was one of Spielberg's most consistent cinematographers, did the cinematography. 
Anvi Coates edited, one of, I believe, Coppola's most consistent editors. Also, I think, edited Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> like, oh, just that. Just that little movie. Uh, and, like, again, like, Frank Marshall and Stan Winston. Like, it's it's a very high-caliber B-movie. So, which one is better? Lawrence of Arabia, Amy of Congo. Mm, I feel like Peter O'Toole had a lot of green drop drink, (laughs) both during and after the filming of that motion picture. So it's a draw for me. It's neck and neck. Yeah, I think so. Congo had no sequels as well. It was like a box office hit, so it made a lot of money. It was not known as a hit in the Obviously not in the way that Jurassic Park was. But I still think it's odd that like that they didn't go like the direct-to-video route at least with this. At least a couple times. Direct-to-video sequels to this could have been way cheaper. Yeah, like you still got evil gorillas in the jungle. There's a lot you can do with that. Yeah. There was a pinball machine of this movie that was notable. As well as a first-person shooter game called Congo the Movie, The Lost City of Zinge. Oh no. I'm not sure why the name of the game was Congo the Movie. <laughs> But whatever. (laughs) And that's all the creatures we have to feature on this episode of When We Were Young. On our next episode, we'll round out the rest of the 90s by revisiting the films Anaconda from 1997 and Lake Placid and Deep Blue Sea, both released in summer 1999. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, or anywhere else you get your podcast product, and rate and review us five stars or more so that more people see the show. You can donate to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash whenwewereyoung to help us produce more episodes of the show that we bring you entirely for free. You can follow us on all social medias at www.yshow. I have been Seth. And I want green drop drink. We know. We know you do. I've had a little... <laughs> Don't squish me or get wish me. That's all.